0: Chapter 28 Bad Events The concept
1: of loss aversion is certainly the most significant contribution of psychology to behavioral economics. This is odd, because the idea that people evaluate many outcomes as gains and losses, and that losses loom larger than gains, surprises no one. Amos and I often joked, that we were engaged in studying a subject about which our grandmothers knew a great deal. In fact, however, we know more than our grandmothers did, and can now embed loss aversion in the context of a broader two-systems model of the mind, and specifically a biological and psychological view in which negativity and escape dominate positivity and approach. We can also trace the consequences of loss aversion in surprisingly diverse observations. Only out-of-pocket losses are compensated when goods are lost in transport. Attempts at large-scale reforms very often fail, and professional golfers putt more accurately for par than for birdie. Clever as she was, my grandmother would have been surprised by the specific predictions from a general
0: idea she considered obvious. Negativity Dominance Take a look at figure
1: 12 on the PDF. Your heartbeat accelerated when you looked at the left set of eyes. It accelerated even before you could label what is so eerie about that picture. After some time, you may have recognized the eyes of a terrified person. The eyes on the right narrowed by the raised cheeks of a smile, express happiness, and they are not nearly as exciting. The two pictures were presented to people lying in a brain scanner. Each picture was shown for less than two one-hundredths of a second, and immediately masked by visual noise, a random display of dark and bright squares. None of the observers ever consciously knew that he had seen pictures of eyes but one part of their brain evidently knew, the amygdala, which has a primary role as the threat center of the brain, although it is also activated in other emotional states. Images of the brain showed an intense response of the amygdala to a threatening picture that the viewers did not recognize. The information about the threat probably traveled via a superfast neural channel that feeds directly into a part of the brain that processes emotions, bypassing the visual cortex that supports the conscious experience of seeing. The same circuit also causes schematic angry faces, a potential threat, to be processed faster and more efficiently than schematic happy faces. Some experimenters have reported that an angry face pops out of a crowd of happy faces, but a single happy face does not stand out in an angry crowd. The brains of humans and other animals contain a mechanism that is designed to give priority to bad news. By shaving a few hundredths of a second from the time needed to detect a predator, This circuit improves the animal's odds of living long enough to reproduce. The automatic operations of System 1 reflect this evolutionary history. No comparably rapid mechanism for recognizing good news has been detected. Of course, we and our animal cousins are quickly alerted to signs of opportunities to mate or to feed, and advertisers design billboards accordingly. Still, Threats are privileged above opportunities as they should be. The brain responds quickly even to purely symbolic threats. Emotionally loaded words quickly attract attention, and bad words—war, crime—attract attention faster than do happy words—peace, love. There is no real threat, but the mere reminder of a bad event is treated in System 1 as threatening. As we saw earlier with the word vomit, the symbolic representation associatively evokes in attenuated form many of the reactions to the real thing, including physiological indices of emotion and even fractional tendencies to avoid or approach, recoil, or lean forward. The sensitivity to threats extends to the processing of statements of opinions with which we strongly disagree. For example, depending on your attitude to euthanasia, it would take your brain less than one quarter of a second to register the threat in a sentence that starts with, I think euthanasia is an acceptable slash unacceptable. The psychologist Paul Rosin, an expert on disgust, observed that a single cockroach will completely wreck the appeal of a bowl of cherries, but a cherry will do nothing at all for a bowl of cockroaches. As he points out, the negative trumps the positive in many ways, and loss aversion is one of many manifestations of a broad negativity dominance. Other scholars, in a paper titled, Bad is Stronger Than Good, summarized the evidence as follows. Bad emotions, bad parents, and bad feedback have more impact than good ones, and bad information is processed more thoroughly than good. The self is more motivated to avoid bad self-definitions than to pursue good ones. Bad impressions and bad stereotypes are quicker to form and more resistant to disconfirmation than good ones. They cite John Gottman, the well-known expert in marital relations, Who observed that the long-term success of a relationship depends far more on avoiding the negative than on seeking the positive. Gottman estimated that a stable relationship requires that good interactions outnumber bad interactions by at least five to one. Other asymmetries in the social domain are even more striking. We all know that a friendship that may take years to develop can be ruined by a single action. Some distinctions between good and bad are hardwired into our biology. Infants enter the world ready to respond to pain as bad and to sweet, up to a point, as good. In many situations, however, the boundary between good and bad is a reference point that changes over time and depends on the immediate circumstances. Imagine that you were out in the country on a cold night, inadequately dressed for the torrential rain, your clothes soaked. A stinging cold wind completes your misery. As you wander around, you find a large rock that provides some shelter from the fury of the elements. The biologist Michel Cabagnac would call the experience of that moment intensely pleasurable because it functions as pleasure normally does, to indicate the direction of a biologically significant improvement of circumstances. The pleasant relief will not last very long, of course, and you will soon be shivering behind the rock again, driven
0: by your renewed suffering to seek better shelter. Goals are reference points.
1: Loss aversion refers to the relative strength of two motives— We are driven more strongly to avoid losses than to achieve gains. A reference point is sometimes the status quo, but it can also be a goal in the future. Not achieving a goal is a loss. Exceeding the goal is a gain. As we might expect from negativity dominance, the two motives are not equally powerful the aversion to the failure of not reaching the goal is much stronger than the desire to exceed it. People often adopt short-term goals that they strive to achieve, but not necessarily to exceed. They are likely to reduce their efforts when they have reached an immediate goal, with results that sometimes violate economic logic. New York cab drivers, for example, may have a target income for the month or the year, but the goal that controls their effort is typically a daily target of earnings. Of course, the daily goal is much easier to achieve and exceed on some days than on others. On rainy days, a New York cab never remains free for long, and the driver quickly achieves his target. Not so in pleasant weather, when cabs often waste time cruising the streets looking for fares. Economic logic implies that cab drivers should work many hours on rainy days and treat themselves to some leisure on mild days when they can buy leisure at a lower price. The logic of loss aversion suggests the opposite. Drivers who have a fixed daily target will work many more hours when the pickings are slim and go home early when rain-drenched customers are begging to be taken somewhere. The economists Devon Pope and Maurice Schweitzer at the University of Pennsylvania reasoned that golf provides a perfect example of a reference point. Par. Every hole on the golf course has a number of strokes associated with it. The par number provides the baseline for good, but not outstanding, performance. For a professional golfer, a birdie, one stroke under par, is a gain and a bogey, one stroke over par, is a loss. The economists compared two situations a player might face when near the hole. Putt to avoid a bogey, putt to achieve a birdie. Every stroke counts in golf, and in professional golf, every stroke counts a lot. According to prospect theory, however, some strokes count more than others. Failing to make par is a loss, but missing a birdie putt is a foregone gain, not a loss. Pope and Schweitzer reasoned from loss aversion that players would try a little harder when putting for par to avoid a bogey than when putting for a birdie. They analyzed more than 2.5 million putts in exquisite detail to test that prediction. They were right. Whether the putt was easy or hard, at every distance from the hole, the players were more successful when putting for par than for a birdie. The difference in the rate of success when going for par, to avoid a bogey, or for a birdie was 3.6%. This difference is not trivial. Tiger Woods was one of the participants in their study. If in his best years Tiger Woods had managed to putt as well for birdies as he did for par, his average tournament score would have improved by one stroke and his earnings by almost one million dollars per season. These fierce competitors certainly do not make a conscious decision to slack off on birdie putts, but their intense aversion to a bogey apparently contributes to extra concentration on the task at hand. The study of putts illustrates the power of a theoretical concept as an aid to thinking. Who would have thought it worthwhile to spend months analyzing putts for par and birdie? The idea of loss aversion, which surprises no one except perhaps some economists, generated a precise and non-intuitive hypothesis and led researchers to a finding that surprised everyone, including professional golfers.
0: Defending the status quo. If you are set to look for it, the asymmetric
1: intensity of the motives to avoid losses and to achieve gains shows up almost everywhere. It is an ever-present feature of negotiations, especially of renegotiations of an existing contract, the typical situation in labor negotiations and in international discussions of trade or arms limitations. The existing terms define reference points, and a proposed change in any aspect of the agreement is inevitably viewed as a concession that one side makes to the other. Loss aversion creates an asymmetry that makes agreements difficult to reach. The concessions you make to me are my gains, but they are your losses. They cause you much more pain than they give me pleasure. Inevitably, you will place a higher value on them than I do. The same is true, of course, of the very painful concessions you demand from me, which you do not appear to value sufficiently. Negotiations over a shrinking pie are especially difficult, because they require an allocation of losses. People tend to be much more easygoing when they bargain over an expanding pie. Many of the messages that negotiators exchange in the course of bargaining are attempts to communicate a reference point and provide an anchor to the other side. The messages are not always sincere. Negotiators often pretend intense attachment to some good, perhaps missiles of a particular type in bargaining over arms reductions, although they actually view that good as a bargaining chip, and intend ultimately to give it away in an exchange. Because negotiators are influenced by a norm of reciprocity, a concession that is presented as painful calls for an equally painful and perhaps equally inauthentic concession from the other side. Animals, including people, fight harder to prevent losses than to achieve gains. In the world of territorial animals, this principle explains the success of defenders. A biologist observed that when a territory holder is challenged by a rival, the owner almost always wins the contest, usually within a manner of seconds. In human affairs, the same simple rule explains much of what happens when institutions attempt to reform themselves in reorganizations and restructuring of companies and in efforts to rationalize a bureaucracy, simplify the tax code, or reduce medical costs. As initially conceived, plans for reform almost always produce many winners and some losers while achieving an overall improvement. If the affected parties have any political influence, however, potential losers will be more active and determined than potential winners the outcome will be biased in their favor and inevitably more expensive and less effective than initially planned. Reforms commonly include grandfather clauses that protect current stakeholders, for example, when the existing workforce is reduced by attrition rather than by dismissals, or when cuts in salaries and benefits apply only to future workers. Loss aversion is a powerful conservative force that favors minimal changes from the status quo in the lives of both institutions and individuals. This conservatism helps keep us stable in our neighborhood, our marriage, and our job. It is the gravitational force
0: that holds our life together near the reference point. Loss Aversion in the Law
1: During the year that we spent working together in Vancouver, Richard Faylor, Jack Knetch, and I were drawn into a study of fairness in economic transactions, partly because we were interested in the topic, but also because we had an opportunity, as well as an obligation, to make up a new questionnaire every week. The Canadian government's Department of Fisheries and Oceans had a program for unemployed professionals in Toronto, who were paid to administer telephone surveys. The large team of interviewers worked every night, and new questions were constantly needed to keep the operation going. Through Jack Kinnett, we agreed to generate a questionnaire every week, in four color-labeled versions. We could ask about anything. The only constraint was that the questionnaire should include at least one mention of fish, to make it pertinent to the mission of the department. This went on for many months, and we treated ourselves to an orgy of data collection. We studied public perceptions of what constitutes unfair behavior on the part of merchants, employers, and landlords. Our overarching question was whether the opprobrium attached to unfairness imposes constraints on profit-seeking. We found that it does. We also found that the moral rules by which the public evaluates what firms may or may not do draw a crucial distinction between losses and gains. The basic principle is that the existing wage, price, or rent sets a reference point which has the nature of an entitlement that must not be infringed. It is considered unfair for the firm to impose losses on its customers or workers relative to the reference transaction, unless it must do so to protect its own entitlement. Consider this example. A hardware store has been selling snow shovels for $15. The morning after a large snowstorm, the store raises the price to $20. Please rate this action as completely fair, acceptable, unfair, very unfair. The hardware store behaves appropriately according to the standard economic model. It responds to increased demand by raising its price. The participants in the survey did not agree. 82% rated the action unfair or very unfair. They evidently viewed the pre-Blizzard price as a reference point, and the raised price as a loss that the store imposes on its customers, not because it must— but simply because it can. A basic rule of fairness, we found, is that the exploitation of market power to impose losses on others is unacceptable. The following example illustrates this rule in another context. The dollar values should be adjusted for about 100% inflation since these data were collected in 1984. A small photocopying shop has one employee who has worked there for six months and earns nine dollars per hour. Business continues to be satisfactory, but a factory in the area has closed and unemployment has increased. Other small shops have now hired reliable workers at seven dollars an hour to perform jobs similar to those done by the photocopy shop employee. The owner of the shop Reduces the employee's wage to $7. The respondents did not approve. 83% considered the behavior unfair or very unfair. However, a slight variation on the question clarifies the nature of the employer's obligation. The background scenario of a profitable store in an area of high unemployment is the same, but now the current employee leaves And the owner decides to pay a replacement $7 an hour. A large majority, 73%, consider this action acceptable. It appears that the employer does not have a moral obligation to pay $9 an hour. The entitlement is personal. The current worker has a right to retain his wage, even if market conditions would allow the employer to impose a wage cut the replacement worker has no entitlement to the previous worker's reference wage, and the employer is therefore allowed to reduce pay without the risk of being branded unfair. The firm has its own entitlement, which is to retain its current profit. If it faces a threat of a loss, it is allowed to transfer the loss to others. A substantial majority of respondents believed that it is not unfair for a firm to reduce its workers' wages when its profitability is falling. We described the rules as defining dual entitlements to the firm and to individuals with whom it interacts. When threatened, it is not unfair for the firm to be selfish. It is not even expected to take on part of the losses. It can pass them on different rules governed what the firm could do to improve its profits or to avoid reduced profits. When a firm faced lower production costs, the rules of fairness did not require it to share the bonanza with either its customers or its workers. Of course our respondents liked a firm better and described it as more fair if it was generous when its profits increased, but they did not brand as unfair a firm that did not share. They showed indignation only when a firm exploited its power to break informal contracts with workers or customers and to impose a loss on others in order to increase its profit. The important task for students of economic fairness is not to identify ideal behavior, but to find the line that separates acceptable conduct from actions that invite opprobrium and punishment. We were not optimistic when we submitted our report of this research to the American Economic Review. Our article challenged what was then accepted wisdom among many economists that economic behavior is ruled by self-interest, and that concerns for fairness are generally irrelevant. We also relied on the evidence of survey responses, for which economists generally have little respect. However, The editor of the journal sent our article for evaluation to two economists who were not bound by those conventions. We later learned their identity. They were the most friendly the editor could have found. The editor made the correct call. The article is often cited, and its conclusions have stood the test of time. More recent research has supported the observations of reference-dependent fairness and has also shown that fairness concerns are economically significant—a fact we had suspected but did not prove. Employers who violate rules of fairness are punished by reduced productivity, and merchants who follow unfair pricing policies can expect to lose sales. People who learned from a new catalogue that the merchant was now charging less for a product that they had recently bought at a higher price reduced their future purchases from that supplier by 15%, an average loss of $90 per customer. The customers evidently perceived the lower price as the reference point and thought of themselves as having sustained a loss by paying more than appropriate. Moreover, the customers who reacted the most strongly were those who bought more items and at higher prices. The losses far exceeded the gains from the increased purchases produced by the lower prices in the new catalog. Unfairly imposing losses on people can be risky if the victims are in a position to retaliate. Furthermore, experiments have shown that strangers who observe unfair behavior often join in the punishment. Neuroeconomists, scientists who combine economics with brain research, have used MRI machines to examine the brains of people who are engaged in punishing one stranger for behaving unfairly to another stranger. Remarkably, altruistic punishment is accompanied by increased activity in the pleasure centers of the brain. It appears that maintaining the social order and the rules of fairness in this fashion is its own reward. Altruistic punishment could well be the glue that holds societies together. Our brains are not designed to reward generosity as reliably as they punish meanness. Here again, we find a marked asymmetry between losses and gains. The influence of loss aversion and entitlements extends far beyond the realm of financial transactions. Jurists were quick to recognize their impact on the law and in the administration of justice. In one study, David Cohen and Jack Kinetch found many examples of a sharp distinction between actual losses and foregone gains in legal decisions. For example, a merchant whose goods were lost in transit may be compensated for costs he actually incurred, but is unlikely to be compensated for lost profits the familiar rule that possession is nine-tenths of the law confirms the moral status of the reference point. In a more recent discussion, Eyal-Zamir makes the provocative point that the distinction drawn in the law between restoring losses and compensating for foregone gains may be justified by their asymmetrical effects on individual well-being. If people who lose suffer more than people who merely fail to gain, they may also
0: deserve more protection from the law. Speaking of losses This reform
1: will not pass. Those who stand to lose will fight harder than those who stand to gain. Each of them thinks the other's concessions are less painful. They're both wrong, of course. It's just the asymmetry of losses. They would find it easier to renegotiate the agreement if they realized the pie was actually expanding. They're not allocating losses, they're allocating gains. Rental prices around here have gone up recently, but our tenants don't think it's fair that we should raise their rent too. They feel entitled to their current terms. My clients don't resent the price hike, because they know my costs have gone up, too.
0: They accept my right to stay profitable. Chapter 29 The Fourfold Pattern Whenever you form a global evaluation of
1: a complex object, a car you may buy, your son-in-law, or an uncertain situation, you assign weights to its characteristics— this is simply a cumbersome way of saying that some characteristics influence your assessment more than others do. The weighting occurs whether or not you are aware of it. It is an operation of System 1. Your overall evaluation of a car may put more or less weight on gas economy, comfort, or appearance. Your judgment of your son-in-law may depend more or less on how rich or handsome or reliable he is. Similarly, your assessment of an uncertain prospect assigns weights to the possible outcomes. The weights are certainly correlated with the probabilities of these outcomes. A 50% chance to win a million is much more attractive than a 1% chance to win the same amount. The assignment of weights is sometimes conscious and deliberate. Most often, however, you are just an observer to a global evaluation that your System
0: 1 delivers. Changing Chances One reason for the popularity of the
1: gambling metaphor in the study of decision-making is that it provides a natural rule for the assignment of weights to the outcomes of a prospect. The more probable an outcome, the more weight it should have. The expected value of a gamble is the average of its outcomes, each weighted by its probability. For example, the expected value of 20% chance to win $1,000 and 75% chance to win $100 is $275. In the pre-Bernoulli days, gambles were assessed by their expected value. Bernoulli retained this method for assigning weights to the outcomes, which is known as the expectation principle, but applied it to the psychological value of the outcomes. The utility of a gamble in his theory is the average of the utilities of its outcomes, each weighted by its probability. The expectation principle does not correctly describe how you think about the probabilities related to risky prospects. In the four examples below, your chances of receiving one million dollars improve by five percent. Is the news equally good in each case? A. From zero to five percent. B. From five percent to ten percent. C. From sixty percent to sixty five percent. D. From ninety five percent to one hundred percent. The expectation principle Asserts that your utility increases in each case by exactly 5% of the utility of receiving 1 million dollars. Does this prediction describe your experiences? Of course not. Everyone agrees that 0 to 5% and 95% to 100% are more impressive than either 5% to 10% or 60% to 65%. Increasing the chances from 0 to 5% transforms the situation, creating a possibility that did not exist earlier, a hope of winning the prize. It is a qualitative change, where 5 to 10% is only a quantitative improvement. The change from 5% to 10% doubles the probability of winning, but there is general agreement that the psychological value of the prospect does not double. The large impact of zero to five percent illustrates the possibility effect, which causes highly unlikely outcomes to be weighted disproportionately more than they deserve. People who buy lottery tickets in vast amounts show themselves willing to pay much more than expected value for very small chances to win a large prize. The improvement from 95% to 100% is another qualitative change that has a large impact. The certainty effect. Outcomes that are almost certain are given less weight than their probability justifies. To appreciate the certainty effect, imagine that you inherited one million dollars, but your greedy stepsister has contested the will in court. The decision is expected tomorrow. Your lawyer assures you that you have a strong case and that you have a 95% chance to win, but he takes pains to remind you that judicial decisions are never perfectly predictable. Now you are approached by a risk adjustment company which offers to buy your case for $910,000 outright. Take it or leave it. The offer is lower by $40,000, than the expected value of waiting for the judgment, which is nine hundred fifty thousand dollars. But are you quite sure you would want to reject it? If such an event actually happens in your life, you should know that a large industry of structured settlements exists to provide certainty at a hefty price by taking advantage of the certainty effect. Possibility and certainty have similarly powerful effects in the domain of losses. When a loved one is wheeled into surgery, a 5% risk that an amputation will be necessary is very bad, much more than half as bad as a 10% risk. Because of the possibility effect, we tend to overweight small risks and are willing to pay far more than expected value to eliminate them altogether. The psychological difference between a 95% risk of disaster and the certainty of disaster appears to be even greater. The sliver of hope that everything could still be okay looms very large. Overweighting of small probabilities increases the attractiveness of both gambles and insurance policies. The conclusion is straightforward. The decision weights that people assign to outcomes are not identical to the probabilities of these outcomes, contrary to the expectation principle. Improbable outcomes are overweighted. This is the possibility effect. Outcomes that are almost certain are underweighted relative to actual certainty. The expectation principle, by which values are weighted by their probability, is poor psychology. The plot thickens, however, because there is a powerful argument that a decision-maker who wishes to be rational must conform to the expectation principle. This was the main point of the axiomatic version of utility theory that von Neumann and Morgenstern introduced in 1944. They proved that any weighting of uncertain outcomes that is not strictly proportional to probability leads to inconsistencies and other disasters. Their derivation of the expectation principle from axioms of rational choice was immediately recognized as a monumental achievement, which placed expected utility theory at the core of the rational agent model in economics and other social sciences. Thirty years later, when Amos introduced me to their work, he presented it as an object of
0: awe. He also introduced me to a famous challenge to that theory. Allais' Paradox In 1952, a few years after the publication
1: of von Neumann and Morgenstern's theory, a meeting was convened in Paris to discuss the economics of risk. Many of the most renowned economists of the time were in attendance. The American guests included the future Nobel laureates Paul Samuelson, Kenneth Arrow, and Milton Friedman, as well as the leading statistician Jimmy Savage. One of the organizers of the Paris meeting was Maurice Allais, who would also receive a Nobel Prize some years later. Allais had something up his sleeve, a couple of questions on choice that he presented to his distinguished audience. In the terms of this chapter, Allais intended to show that his guests were susceptible to a certainty effect and therefore violated expected utility theory and the axioms of rational choice on which that theory rests. The following set of choices is a simplified version of the puzzle that Allais constructed. Which option would you choose in each of the following problems? A. 61% chance to win $520,000, or 63% chance to win $500,000. B. 98% chance to win $520,000, or 100% chance to win $500,000. If you are like most other people, you preferred the left-hand option in problem A, and you preferred the right-hand option in problem B. If these were your preferences, you have just committed a logical sin and violated the rules of rational choice. The illustrious economists assembled in Paris committed similar sins in a more involved version of the Allais paradox. To see why these choices are problematic, imagine that the outcome will be determined by a blind draw from an urn that contains 100 marbles. You win if you draw a red marble, you lose if you draw white. In problem A, almost everybody prefers the left-hand urn, although it has fewer winning red marbles, because the difference in the size of the prize is more impressive than the difference in the chances of winning. In problem B, a large majority chooses the urn that guarantees a gain of $500,000. Furthermore, people are comfortable with both choices, until they are led through the logic of the problem. Compare the two problems, and you will see that the two urns of problem B are more favorable versions of the urns of problem A, with 37 white marbles replaced by red winning marbles in each urn. The improvement on the left is clearly superior to the improvement on the right, since each red marble gives you a chance to win $520,000 on the left, and only $500,000 on the right. So you started in the first problem with a preference for the left-hand urn, which was then improved more than the right-hand urn, but now you like the one on the right. This pattern of choices does not make logical sense, but a psychological explanation is readily available the certainty effect is at work. The 2% difference between a 100% and a 98% chance to win in problem B is vastly more impressive than the same difference between 63% and 61% in problem A. As La had anticipated— The sophisticated participants at the meeting did not notice that their preferences violated utility theory until he drew their attention to that fact as the meeting was about to end. L.A. had intended this announcement to be a bombshell. The leading decision theorists in the world had preferences that were inconsistent with their own view of rationality. He apparently believed that his audience would be persuaded to give up the approach that he rather contemptuously labelled the American school, and adopt an alternative logic of choice that he had developed. He was to be sorely disappointed. Economists who were not aficionados of decision theory mostly ignored the Allais problem. As often happens when a theory that has been widely adopted and found useful is challenged, they noted the problem as an anomaly and continued using expected utility theory as if nothing had happened. In contrast, decision theorists, a mixed collection of statisticians, economists, philosophers, and psychologists, took L.A.'s challenge very seriously. When Amos and I began our work, one of our initial goals was to develop a satisfactory psychological account of Allais' paradox. Most decision theorists, notably including Allais, maintained their belief in human rationality and tried to bend the rules of rational choice to make the Allais pattern permissible. Over the years, there have been multiple attempts to find a plausible justification for the certainty effect, none very convincing. Amos had little patience for these efforts. He called the theorists who tried to rationalize violations of utility theory lawyers for the misguided. We went in another direction. We retained utility theory as a logic of rational choice, but abandoned the idea that people are perfectly rational choosers. We took on the task of developing a psychological theory that would describe the choices people make, regardless of whether they are rational. In prospect theory, decision weights would
0: not be identical to probabilities. Decision weights. Many years
1: after we published Prospect Theory, Amos and I carried out a study in which we measured the decision weights that explained people's preferences for gambles with modest monetary stakes. The estimates for gains are probability percent zero, decision weight zero, probability percent one, decision weight 5.5, probability percent two, decision weight 8.1, Probability percent 5, decision weight 13.2. Probability percent 10, decision weight 18.6. Probability percent 20, decision weight 26.1. Probability percent 50, decision weight 42.1. Probability percent 80, decision weight 60.1. Probability percent 90, decision weight 71.2. Probability percent 95, decision weight 79.3. Probability percent 98, decision weight 87.1. Probability percent 99, decision weight 91.2. Probability percent 100, decision weight 100. You can see that the decision weights are identical to the corresponding probabilities at the extremes, both equal to zero when the outcome is impossible, and both equal to 100 when the outcome is a sure thing. However, decision weights depart sharply from probabilities near these points. At the low end, we find the possibility effect. Unlikely events are considerably overweighted. For example, the decision weight that corresponds to a 2% chance is 8.1. If people conformed to the axioms of rational choice, the decision weight would be 2. So the rare event is overweighted by a factor of 4. The certainty effect at the other end of the probability scale is even more striking. A 2% risk of not winning the prize reduces the utility of the gamble by 13%, from 100 to 87.1. To appreciate the asymmetry between the possibility effect and the certainty effect, imagine first that you have a 1% chance to win $1,000,000. You will know the outcome tomorrow. Now, imagine that you are almost certain to win $1,000,000, but there is a 1% chance that you will not. Again, you will learn the outcome tomorrow. The anxiety of the second situation appears to be more salient than the hope in the first. The certainty effect is also more striking than the possibility effect if the outcome is a surgical disaster rather than a financial gain. Compare the intensity with which you focus on the faint sliver of hope in an operation that is almost certain to be fatal. Compared to the fear of a 1% risk. The combination of the certainty effect and possibility effects at the two ends of the probability scale is inevitably accompanied by inadequate sensitivity to intermediate probabilities. You can see that the range of probabilities between 5% and 95% is associated with a much smaller range of decision weights. From 13.2 to 79.3, about two-thirds as much as rationally expected. Neuroscientists have confirmed these observations, finding regions of the brain that respond to changes in the probability of winning a prize. The brain's response to variations of probabilities is strikingly similar to the decision weights estimated from choices probabilities that are extremely low or high, below 1% or above 99%, are a special case. It is difficult to assign a unique decision weight to very rare events, because they are sometimes ignored altogether, effectively assigned a decision weight of zero. On the other hand, when you do not ignore the very rare events, you will certainly overweight them, Most of us spend very little time worrying about nuclear meltdowns or fantasizing about large inheritances from unknown relatives. However, when an unlikely event becomes the focus of attention, we will assign it much more weight than its probability deserves. Furthermore, people are almost completely insensitive to variations of risk among small probabilities. A cancer risk of 0.001% is not easily distinguished from a risk of 0.00001%. Although the former would translate to 3,000 cancers for the population of the United States and the latter to 30. When you pay attention to a threat, you worry. And the decision weights reflect how much you worry. Because of the possibility effect, the worry is not proportional to the probability of the threat. Reducing or mitigating the risk is not adequate. To eliminate the worry, the probability must be brought down to zero. The following question is adapted from a study of the rationality of consumer valuations of health risks, which was published by a team of economists in the 1980s. The survey was addressed to parents of small children. Suppose that you currently use an insect spray that costs you $10 per bottle and it results in 15 inhalation poisonings and 15 child poisonings for every 10,000 bottles of insect spray that are used. You learn of a more expensive insecticide that reduces each of the risks to five for every 10,000 bottles, how much would you be willing to pay for it? The parents were willing to pay an additional $2.38 on average to reduce the risks by two-thirds from 15 per 10,000 bottles to five. They were willing to pay $8.09, more than three times as much, to eliminate it completely. Other questions showed that the parents treated the two risks inhalation and child poisoning as separate worries, and were willing to pay a certainty premium for the complete elimination of either one. This premium is compatible with
0: the psychology of worry, but not with the rational model. The Fourfold Pattern When Amos and I began our work on prospect theory,
1: we quickly reached two conclusions— People attach values to gains and losses rather than to wealth, and the decision weights that they assign to outcomes are different from probabilities. Neither idea was completely new, but in combination they explained a distinctive pattern of preferences that we call the fourfold pattern. The name has stuck. The scenarios are illustrated in figure 13 on the PDF. The top row in each cell shows an illustrative prospect. The second row characterizes the focal emotion that the prospect evokes. The third row indicates how most people behave when offered a choice between a gamble and a sure gain or loss that corresponds to its expected value for example, between 95% chance to win $10,000 and $9,500 with certainty. Choices are said to be risk-averse if the sure thing is preferred, risk-seeking if the gamble is preferred. The fourth row describes the expected attitudes of a defendant and a plaintiff as they discuss a settlement of a civil suit. The fourfold pattern of preferences is considered one of the core achievements of prospect theory. Three of the four cells are familiar. The fourth, top right, was new and initially surprising. The top left is the one Bernoulli discussed. People are averse to risk when they consider prospects with a substantial chance to achieve a large gain. They are willing to accept less than the expected value of a gamble to lock in a sure gain. The possibility effect in the bottom left cell explains why lotteries are popular. When the top prize is very large, ticket buyers appear indifferent to the fact that their chance of winning is minuscule. A lottery ticket is the ultimate example of the possibility effect. Without a ticket, you cannot win. With a ticket, you have a chance, and whether the chance is tiny or merely small matters little. Of course, what people acquire with a ticket is more than a chance to win, it is the right to dream pleasantly of winning. The bottom right cell is where insurance is bought. People are willing to pay much more for insurance than expected value, which is how insurance companies cover their costs and make their profits. Here again, people buy more than protection against an unlikely disaster, they eliminate a worry and purchase peace of mind. The results for the top right cell initially surprised us. We were accustomed to think in terms of risk aversion, except for the bottom left cell where lotteries are preferred. When we looked at our choices for bad options, we quickly realized that That we were just as risk-seeking in the domain of losses as we were risk-averse in the domain of gains. We were not the first to observe risk-seeking with negative prospects. At least two authors had reported that fact, but they had not made much of it. However, we were fortunate to have a framework that made the finding of risk-seeking easy to interpret, and that was a milestone in our thinking. Indeed, we had identified two reasons for this effect. First, there is diminishing sensitivity. The sure loss is very aversive because the reaction to a loss of $900 is more than 90% as intense as the reaction to a loss of $1,000. The second factor may be even more powerful. The decision weight that corresponds to a probability of 90% is only about 71, much lower than the probability. The result is that when you consider a choice between a sure loss and a gamble with a high probability of a larger loss, diminishing sensitivity makes the sure loss more aversive, and the certainty effect reduces the aversiveness of the gamble. The same two factors enhance the attractiveness of the sure thing and reduce the attractiveness of the gamble when the outcomes are positive. The shape of the value function and the decision weights both contribute to the pattern observed in the top row of figure 13. In the bottom row, however, the two factors operate in opposite directions. Diminishing sensitivity continues to favor risk aversion for gains and risk-seeking for losses but the overweighting of low probabilities overcomes this effect and produces the observed pattern of gambling for gains and caution for losses. Many unfortunate human situations unfold in the top right cell. This is where people who face very bad options take desperate gambles, accepting a high probability of making things worse in exchange for a small hope of avoiding a large loss. Risk-taking of this kind often turns manageable failures into disasters. The thought of accepting the large, sure loss is too painful, and the hope of complete relief too enticing to make the sensible decision that it is time to cut one's losses. This is where businesses that are losing ground to a superior technology waste their remaining assets in futile attempts to catch up. Because defeat is so difficult to accept, the losing side in wars often fights long past the point at which the victory of the other side is certain
0: and only a matter of time. Gambling in the Shadow of the Law The
1: legal scholar Chris Guthrie has offered a compelling application of the fourfold pattern to two situations in which the plaintiff and the defendant in a civil suit consider a possible settlement. The situations differ in the strength of the plaintiff's case. As in a scenario we saw earlier, you are the plaintiff in a civil suit in which you have made a claim for a large sum in damages. The trial is going very well and your lawyer cites expert opinion that you have a 95% chance to win outright, but adds the caution, you never really know the outcome until the jury comes in. Your lawyer urges you to accept a settlement in which you might get only 90% of your claim. You are in the top-left cell of the fourfold pattern, and the question on your mind is, am I willing to take even a small chance of getting nothing at all? Even 90% of the claim is a great deal of money, and I can walk away with it now. Two emotions are evoked, both driving in the same direction—the attraction of a sure and substantial gain, and the fear of intense disappointment and regret if you reject a settlement and lose in court. You can feel the pressure that typically leads to cautious behavior in this situation the plaintiff with a strong case is likely to be risk-averse. Now, step into the shoes of the defendant in the same case. Although you have not completely given up hope of a decision in your favor, you realize that the trial is going poorly. The plaintiff's lawyers have proposed a settlement in which you would have to pay ninety percent of their original claim, and it is clear they will not accept less. Will you settle, or will you pursue the case? Because you face a high probability of a loss, your situation belongs in the top right cell. The temptation to fight on is strong. The settlement that the plaintiff has offered is almost as painful as the worst outcome you face. And there is still hope of prevailing in court. Here again, two emotions are involved. The sure loss is repugnant, And the possibility of winning in court is highly attractive. A defendant with a weak case is likely to be risk seeking, prepared to gamble rather than accept a very unfavorable settlement. In the face off between a risk averse plaintiff and a risk seeking defendant, the defendant holds the stronger hand. The superior bargaining position of the defendant should be reflected in negotiated settlements with the plaintiff settling for less than the statistically expected outcome of the trial. This prediction from the fourfold pattern was confirmed by experiments conducted with law students and practicing judges, and also by analyses of actual negotiations in the shadow of civil trials. Now consider frivolous litigation, when a plaintiff with a flimsy case files a large claim that is most likely to fail in court. Both sides are aware of the probabilities, and both know that in a negotiated settlement, the plaintiff will get only a small fraction of the amount of the claim. The negotiation is conducted in the bottom row of the fourfold pattern. The plaintiff is in the left-hand cell, with a small chance to win a very large amount, the frivolous claim is a lottery ticket for a large prize. Overweighting the small chance of success is natural in this situation, leading the plaintiff to be bold and aggressive in the negotiation. For the defendant, the suit is a nuisance with a small risk of a very bad outcome. Overweighting the small chance of a large loss favors risk aversion and settling for a modest amount is equivalent to purchasing insurance against the unlikely event of a bad verdict. The shoe is now on the other foot. The plaintiff is willing to gamble and the defendant wants to be safe. Plaintiffs with frivolous claims are likely to obtain a more generous settlement than the statistics of the situation justify. The decisions described by the fourfold pattern are not obviously unreasonable, you can empathize in each case with the feelings of the plaintiff and the defendant that lead them to adopt a combative or an accommodating posture. In the long run, however, deviations from expected value are likely to be costly. Consider a large organization, the city of New York, and suppose it faces 200 frivolous suits each year— each with a 5% chance to cost the city $1 million. Suppose further that in each case the city could settle the lawsuit for a payment of $100,000. The city considers two alternative policies that it will apply to all such cases—settle or go to trial. For simplicity, I ignore legal costs. If the city litigates all 200 cases it will lose ten for a total loss of ten million dollars. If the city settles every case for one hundred thousand dollars, its total loss will be twenty million dollars. When you take the long view of many similar decisions, you can see that paying a premium to avoid a small risk of a large loss is costly. A similar analysis applies to each of the cells of the fourfold pattern. Systematic deviations from expected value are costly in the long run, and this rule applies to both risk aversion and risk seeking. Consistent overweighting of improbable outcomes, a feature of intuitive decision making,
0: eventually leads to inferior outcomes. Speaking of the fourfold pattern.
1: He is tempted to settle this frivolous claim to avoid a freak loss, however unlikely. That's overwaking of small probabilities. Since he is likely to face many similar problems, he would be better off not yielding. We never let our vacations hang on a last-minute deal. We're willing to pay a lot for certainty. They will not cut their losses so long as there is a chance of breaking even. This is risk-seeking in the losses. They know the risk of a gas explosion is minuscule, but they
0: want it mitigated. It's a possibility effect, and they want peace of mind. Chapter 30 Rare Events I
1: visited Israel several times during a period in which suicide bombings in buses were relatively common though of course quite rare in absolute terms. There were altogether 23 bombings between December 2001 and September 2004, which had caused a total of 236 fatalities. The number of daily bus riders in Israel was approximately 1.3 million at that time. For any traveler, the risks were tiny, but that was not how the public felt about it. People avoided buses as much as they could, and many travelers spent their time on the bus anxiously scanning their neighbors for packages or bulky clothes that might hide a bomb. I did not have much occasion to travel on buses, as I was driving a rented car, but I was chagrined to discover that my behavior was also affected. I found that I did not like to stop next to a bus at a red light, and I drove away more quickly than usual when the light changed. I was ashamed of myself, because of course I knew better. I knew that the risk was truly negligible, and that any effect at all on my actions would assign an inordinately high decision weight to a minuscule probability. In fact, I was more likely to be injured in a driving accident than by stopping near a bus. But my avoidance of buses was not motivated by a rational concern for survival. What drove me was the experience of the moment being next to a bus made me think of bombs, and these thoughts were unpleasant. I was avoiding buses because I wanted to think of something else. My experience illustrates how terrorism works and why it is so effective. It induces an availability cascade. An extremely vivid image of death and damage constantly reinforced by media attention and frequent conversations becomes highly accessible, especially if it is associated with a specific situation such as the sight of a bus. The emotional arousal is associative, automatic and uncontrolled, and it produces an impulse for protective action. System 2 may know that the probability is low, But this knowledge does not eliminate the self-generated discomfort and the wish to avoid it. System 1 cannot be turned off. The emotion is not only disproportionate to the probability, it is also insensitive to the exact level of probability. Suppose that two cities have been warned about the presence of suicide bombers. Residents of one city are told that two bombers are ready to strike. Residents of another city are told of a single bomber. Their risk is lower by half, but do they feel much safer? Many stores in New York City sell lottery tickets, and business is good. The psychology of high-prize lotteries is similar to the psychology of terrorism. The thrilling possibility of winning the big prize is shared by the community and reinforced by conversations at work and at home. Buying a ticket is immediately rewarded by pleasant fantasies, just as avoiding a bus was immediately rewarded by relief from fear. In both cases, the actual probability is inconsequential. Only possibility matters. The original formulation of prospect theory included the argument that highly unlikely events are either ignored or overweighted. But it did not specify the conditions under which one or the other will occur, nor did it propose a psychological interpretation of it. My current view of decision weights has been strongly influenced by recent research on the role of emotions and vividness in decision making. Overweighting of unlikely outcomes is rooted in System 1 features that are familiar by now, emotion and vividness influence fluency, availability, and judgments of probability, and thus account for our excessive response to the few
0: rare events that we do not ignore. Overestimation and Overweighting
1: What is your judgment of the probability that the next president of the United States will be a third-party candidate? How much will you pay for a bet in which you receive $1,000 if the next president of the United States is a third-party candidate and no money otherwise? The two questions are different but obviously related. The first asks you to assess the probability of an unlikely event. The second invites you to put a decision weight on the same event by placing a bet on it. How do people make the judgments, and how do they assign decision weights? We start from two simple answers, then qualify them. Here are the oversimplified answers. People overestimate the probabilities of unlikely events. People overweight unlikely events in their decisions. Although overestimation and overweighting are distinct phenomena, the same psychological mechanisms are involved in both, focused attention, confirmation bias, and cognitive ease. Specific descriptions trigger the associative machinery of system one. When you thought about the unlikely victory of a third-party candidate, your associative system worked in its usual confirmatory mode, selectively retrieving evidence, instances, and images that would make the statement true. The process was biased, but it was not an exercise in fantasy. You looked for a plausible scenario that conforms to the constraints of reality. You did not simply imagine the fairy of the West installing a third-party president. Your judgment of probability— was ultimately determined by the cognitive ease or fluency with which a plausible scenario came to mind. You do not always focus on the event you are asked to estimate. If the target event is very likely, you focus on its alternative. Consider this example. What is the probability that a baby born in your local hospital will be released within three days? You were asked to estimate the probability of the baby going home, but you almost certainly focused on the events that might cause a baby not to be released within the normal period. Our mind has a useful capability to focus spontaneously on whatever is odd, different, or unusual. You quickly realized that it is normal for babies in the United States. Not all countries have the same standards, to be released within two or three days of birth. So your attention turned to the abnormal alternative. The unlikely event became focal. The availability heuristic is likely to be evoked. Your judgment was probably determined by the number of scenarios of medical problems you produced and by the ease with which they came to mind. Because you were in confirmatory mode, there is a good chance that your estimate of the frequency of problems was too high. The probability of a rare event is most likely to be overestimated when the alternative is not fully specified. My favorite example comes from a study the psychologist Craig Fox conducted while he was Amos's student. Fox recruited fans of professional basketball and elicited several judgments and decisions Concerning the winner of the NBA playoffs. In particular, he asked them to estimate the probability that each of the eight participating teams would win the playoff. The victory of each team in turn was the focal event. You can surely guess what happened, but the magnitude of the effect that Fox observed may surprise you. Imagine a fan who has been asked to estimate the chances that the Chicago Bulls will win the tournament. The focal event is well defined, but its alternative, one of the other seven teams winning, is diffuse and less evocative. The fans' memory and imagination operating in confirmatory mode are trying to construct a victory for the Bulls. When the same person is next asked to assess the chances of the Lakers, the same selective activation will work in favor of that team. The eight best professional basketball teams in the United States are all very good. And it is possible to imagine even a relatively weak team among them emerging as champion. The result? The probability judgments generated successively for the eight teams added up to 240%. This pattern is absurd, of course, because the sum of the chances of the eight events must add up to 100%. The absurdity disappeared when the same judges were asked whether the winner would be from the Eastern or the Western Conference. The focal event and its alternative were equally specific in that question, and the judgments of their probabilities added up to 100%. To assess decision weights, Fox also invited the basketball fans to bet on the tournament result. They assigned a cash equivalent to each bet a cash amount that was just as attractive as playing the bet. Winning the bet would earn a payoff of $160. The sum of the cash equivalents for the eight individual teams was $287. An average participant who took all eight bets would be guaranteed a loss of $127. The participants surely knew there were eight teams in the tournament and that the average payoff for betting on all of them could not exceed $160, but they overweighted nonetheless. The fans not only overestimated the probability of the events they focused on, they were also much too willing to bet on them. These findings shed new light on the planning fallacy and other manifestations of optimism. The successful execution of a plan is specific and easy to imagine when one tries to forecast the outcome of a project. In contrast, the alternative of failure is diffuse, because there are innumerable ways for things to go wrong. Entrepreneurs and their investors who evaluate their prospects are prone both to
0: overestimate their chances and to overweight their own estimates vivid outcomes. As we have seen, prospect theory differs from utility
1: theory in the relationship it suggests between probability and decision weight. In utility theory, decision weights and probabilities are the same. The decision weight of a sure thing is 100, and the weight that corresponds to a 90% chance is exactly 90 which is nine times more than the decision weight for a 10% chance. In prospect theory, variations of probability have less effect on decision weights. An experiment that I mentioned earlier found that the decision weight for a 90% chance was 71.2, and the decision weight for a 10% chance was 18.6. The ratio of the probabilities was 9.0, but the ratio of the decision weights was only 3.83, indicating insufficient sensitivity to probability in that range. In both theories, the decision weights depend only on probability, not on the outcome. Both theories predict that the decision weight for a 90% chance is the same for winning $100, receiving a dozen roses, or getting an electric shock this theoretical prediction turns out to be wrong. Psychologists at the University of Chicago published an article with the attractive title, Money, Kisses, and Electric Shocks, on the affective psychology of risk. Their finding was that the valuation of gambles was much less sensitive to probability when the fictitious outcomes were emotional meeting and kissing your favorite movie star, or getting a painful but not dangerous electric shock, than when the outcomes were gains or losses of cash. This was not an isolated finding. Other researchers had found, using physiological measures such as heart rate, that the fear of an impending electric shock was essentially uncorrelated with the probability of receiving the shock. The mere possibility of a shock triggered the full-blown fear response. The Chicago team proposed that affect-laden imagery overwhelmed the response to probability. Ten years later, a team of psychologists at Princeton challenged that conclusion. The Princeton team argued that the low sensitivity to probability that had been observed for emotional outcomes is normal. Gambles on money are the exception. The sensitivity to probability is relatively high for these gambles because they have a definite expected value. What amount of cash is as attractive as each of these gambles? A. 84% chance to win $59. B. 84% chance to receive one dozen red roses in a glass vase. What do you notice? The salient difference is that question A is much easier than question B. You did not stop to compute the expected value of the bet, but you probably knew quickly that it is not far from $50. In fact, it is $49.56, and the vague estimate was sufficient to provide a helpful anchor as you searched for an equally attractive cash gift. No such anchor is available for question B, which is therefore much harder to answer. Respondents also assessed the cash equivalent of gambles with a 21% chance to win the two outcomes. As expected, the difference between the high probability and low probability gambles was much more pronounced for the money than for the roses. To bolster their argument that insensitivity to probability is not caused by emotion, the Princeton team compared willingness to pay to avoid gambles. 21% chance, or 84% chance, to spend a weekend painting someone's three-bedroom apartment. 21% chance, or 84% chance, to clean three stalls in a dormitory bathroom after a weekend of use. The second outcome is surely much more emotional than the first, but the decision weights for the two outcomes did not differ. Evidently, the intensity of emotion is not the answer. Another experiment yielded a surprising result. The participants received explicit price information along with a verbal description of the prize. An example could be 84% chance to win a dozen red roses in a glass vase Value $59. 21% chance to win a dozen red roses in a glass vase. Value $59. It is easy to assess the expected monetary value of these gambles. But adding a specific monetary value did not alter the results. Evaluations remained insensitive to probability even in that condition. People who thought of the gift as a chance to get roses did not use price information as an anchor in evaluating the gamble. As scientists sometimes say, this is a surprising finding that is trying to tell us something. What story is it trying to tell us? The story, I believe, is that a rich and vivid representation of the outcome, whether or not it is emotional reduces the role of probability in the evaluation of an uncertain prospect. This hypothesis suggests a prediction, in which I have reasonably high confidence, although my predictions are often wrong. Adding irrelevant but vivid details to a monetary outcome also disrupts calculation. Compare your cash equivalents for the following outcomes. 21% or 84% chance to receive $59 next Monday. 21% or 84% chance to receive a large blue cardboard envelope containing $59 next Monday morning. The new hypothesis is that there will be less sensitivity to probability in the second case, because the blue envelope evokes a richer and more fluent representation than the abstract notion of a sum of money. You constructed the event in your mind, and the vivid image of the outcome exists there even if you know that its probability is low. Cognitive ease contributes to the certainty effect as well. When you hold a vivid image of an event the possibility of its not occurring is also represented vividly and overweighted. The combination of an enhanced possibility effect with an enhanced certainty effect leaves little room for decision weights to change between chances of 21% and 84%. Vivid
0: probabilities. The idea that fluency,
1: vividness, and the ease of imagining contribute to decision weights, gains support from many other observations. In a classic experiment, the psychologist Seymour Epstein gave participants a choice of drawing a marble from one of two urns, in which red marbles win a prize. Urn A contains ten marbles, of which one is red. Urn B contains one hundred marbles, of which eight are red which urn would you choose? The chances of winning are 10% in urn A and 8% in urn B, so making the right choice should be easy, but it is not. About 30% to 40% of students choose the urn with the larger number of winning marbles rather than the urn that provides a better chance of winning. Epstein presented his result as evidence of the superficial processing that is characteristic of System 1, which he calls the experiential system. As you might expect, the remarkably foolish choices that people make in this situation have attracted the attention of many researchers. The bias has been given several names. Following Paul Slovic, I will call it denominator neglect. If your attention is drawn to the winning marbles, you do not assess the number of non-winning marbles with the same care. Vivid imagery contributes to denominator neglect, at least as I experience it. When I think of the small urn, I see a single red marble on a vaguely defined background of white marbles. When I think of the larger urn, I see eight winning red marbles on an indistinct background of white marbles, which creates a more hopeful feeling. The distinctive vividness of the winning marbles increases the decision weight of that event, enhancing the possibility effect. Of course, the same will be true of the certainty effect. If I have a 90% chance of winning a prize, the event of not winning will be more salient if 10 of 100 marbles are losers than if one of ten marbles yields the same outcome. The idea of denominator neglect helps explain why different ways of communicating risks vary so much in their effects. You read that a vaccine that protects children from a fatal disease carries a 0.001% risk of permanent disability. The risk appears small now consider another description of the same risk. One of 100,000 vaccinated children will be permanently disabled. The second statement does something to your mind that the first does not. It calls up the image of an individual child who is permanently disabled by a vaccine. The 99,999 safely vaccinated children have faded into the background. As predicted by denominator neglect, low probability events are much more heavily weighted when described in terms of relative frequencies, how many, than when stated in more abstract terms of chances, risk, or probability, how likely. As we have seen, system one is much better at dealing with individuals than categories. The effect of the frequency format is large, In one study, people who saw information about a disease that kills 1,286 people out of every 10,000 judged it as more dangerous than people who were told about a disease that kills 24.14% of the population. The first disease appears more threatening than the second, although the former risk is only half as large as the latter. In an even more direct demonstration of denominator neglect, a disease that kills 1,286 people out of every 10,000 was judged more dangerous than a disease that kills 24.4 out of 100. The effect would surely be reduced or eliminated if participants were asked for a direct comparison of the two formulations, a task that explicitly calls for system two. Life, however, is usually a between-subjects experiment in which you see only one formulation at a time. It would take an exceptionally active system, too, to generate alternative formulations of the one you see and to discover that they evoke a different response. Experienced forensic psychologists and psychiatrists are not immune to the effects of the format in which risks are expressed. In one experiment, professionals evaluated whether it was safe to discharge from the psychiatric hospital a patient, Mr. Jones, with a history of violence. The information they received included an expert's assessment of the risk. The same statistics were described in two ways. Patients similar to Mr. Jones are estimated to have a 10% probability of committing an act of violence against others during the first several months after discharge. Of every 100 patients similar to Mr. Jones, 10 are estimated to commit an act of violence against others during the first several months after discharge. The professionals who saw the frequency format were almost twice as likely to deny the discharge compared to 21% in the probability format. The more vivid description produces a higher decision weight for the same probability. The power of format creates opportunities for manipulation which people with an axe to grind know how to exploit. Slovic and his colleagues cite an article that states that, Approximately 1,000 homicides a year are committed nationwide by seriously mentally ill individuals who are not taking their medication. Another way of expressing the same fact is that 1,000 out of 273 million Americans will die in this manner each year. Another is that the annual likelihood of being killed by such an individual is approximately zero point zero 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 three six percent still another one thousand americans will die in this manner each year or less than one-thirtieth the number who will die of suicide and about one-fourth the number who will die of laryngeal cancer slovik points out that these advocates are quite open about their motivation they want to frighten the general public about violence by people with mental disorder in the hope that this fear will translate into increased funding for mental health services. A good attorney who wishes to cast doubt on DNA evidence will not tell the jury that the chance of a false match is 0.1 percent. The statement that a false match occurs in one of 1,000 capital cases is far more likely to pass the threshold of reasonable doubt the jurors hearing those words are invited to generate the image of the man who sits before them in the courtroom being wrongly convicted because of flawed DNA evidence. The prosecutor, of course, will favor the more abstract frame, hoping to fill
0: the jurors' minds with decimal points. Decisions from Global Impressions
1: The evidence suggests the hypothesis that focal attention and salience contribute to both the overestimation of unlikely events and the overweighting of unlikely outcomes. Salience is enhanced by mere mention of an event by its vividness and by the format in which probability is described. There are exceptions, of course, in which focusing on an event does not raise its probability, cases in which an erroneous theory makes an event appear impossible even when you think about it, or cases in which an inability to imagine how an outcome might come about leaves you convinced that it will not happen. The bias toward overestimation and overweighting of salient events is not an absolute rule, but it is large and robust. There has been much interest in recent years in studies of choice from experience, which follow different rules from the choices from description that are analyzed in prospect theory. Participants in a typical experiment face two buttons. When pressed, each button produces either a monetary reward or nothing, and the outcome is drawn randomly according to the specifications of a prospect. For example, to win $12, or 95% chance to win $1. The process is truly random, so there is no guarantee that the sample a participant sees exactly represents the statistical setup. The expected values associated with the two buttons are approximately equal, but one is riskier, more variable than the other. For example, one button may produce $10 on 5% of the trials, and the other $1 on 50% of the trials. Choice from experience is implemented by exposing the participant to many trials in which she can observe the consequences of pressing one button or another. On the critical trial, she chooses one of the two buttons, and she earns the outcome on that trial choice from description is realized by showing the subject the verbal description of the risky prospect associated with each button, such as 5% to win $12, and asking her to choose one. As expected from prospect theory, choice from description yields a possibility effect. Rare outcomes are overweighted relative to their probability. In sharp contrast, Overweighting is never observed in choice from experience, and underweighting is common. The experimental situation of choice by experience is intended to represent many situations in which we are exposed to variable outcomes from the same source. A restaurant that is usually good may occasionally serve a brilliant or an awful meal. Your friend is usually good company but he sometimes turns moody and aggressive. California is prone to earthquakes, but they happen rarely. The results of many experiments suggest that rare events are not overweighted when we make decisions such as choosing a restaurant or tying down the boiler to reduce earthquake damage. The interpretation of choice from experience is not yet settled but there is general agreement on one major cause of underweighting of rare events. Both in experiments and in the real world, many participants never experience the rare event. Most Californians have never experienced a major earthquake, and in 2007, no banker had personally experienced a devastating financial crisis. Ralph Hertwig and Ido Erev, Note that chances of rare events, such as the burst of housing bubbles, receive less impact than they deserve according to their objective probabilities. They point to the public's tepid response to long-term environmental threats as an example. These examples of neglect are both important and easily explained, but underweighting also occurs when people have actually experienced the rare event. Suppose you have a complicated question that two colleagues on your floor could probably answer. You have known them both for years and have had many occasions to observe and experience their character. Adele is fairly consistent and generally helpful, though not exceptional on that dimension. Brian is not quite as friendly and helpful as Adele most of the time, but on some occasions he has been extremely generous with his time and advice whom will you approach consider two possible views of this decision it is a choice between two gambles adele is closer to a sure thing the prospect of brian is more likely to yield a slightly inferior outcome with a low probability of a very good one the rare event will be overweighted by a possibility effect favoring brian it is a choice between your global impressions of Adele and Brian. The good and the bad experiences you have had are pooled in your representation of their normal behavior. Unless the rare event is so extreme that it comes to mind separately—Brian once verbally abused a colleague who asked for his help—the norm will be biased toward typical and recent instances favoring Adele. In a two-system mind, the second interpretation appears far more plausible. System one generates global representations of Adele and Brian, which include an emotional attitude and a tendency to approach or avoid. Nothing beyond a comparison of these tendencies is needed to determine the door on which you will knock. Unless the rare event comes to your mind explicitly, it will not be overweighted. Applying the same idea to the experiments on choice from experience is straightforward. As they are observed generating outcomes over time, the two buttons develop integrated personalities to which emotional responses are attached. The conditions under which rare events are ignored or overweighted are better understood now than they were when prospect theory was formulated. The probability of a rare event will, often, not always, be overestimated because of the confirmatory bias of memory. Thinking about that event, you try to make it true in your mind. A rare event will be overweighted if it specifically attracts attention. Separate attention is effectively guaranteed when prospects are described explicitly. 99% chance to win $1,000 and 1% chance to win nothing. Obsessive concerns, the bus in Jerusalem, vivid images, the roses, concrete representations, one of one thousand, and explicit reminders, as in choice from description, all contribute to overweighting. And when there is no overweighting, there will be neglect. When it comes to rare probabilities, our mind is not designed to get things quite right. For the residents of a planet that may be exposed to events
0: no one has yet experienced, this is not good news. Speaking of Rare Events Tsunamis are very rare even in Japan,
1: but the image is so vivid and compelling that tourists are bound to overestimate their probability. It's the familiar disaster cycle. Begin by exaggeration and overweighting, then neglect sets in. We should focus on a single scenario, or we will overestimate its probability. Let's set up specific alternatives and make the probabilities add up to 100%. They want people to be worried by the risk. That's why they describe it as one death per
0: one thousand. They're counting on denominator neglect. Chapter 31 Risk Policies Imagine that you face the following
1: pair of concurrent decisions. First examine both decisions, then make your choices. Decision 1. Choose between A. Sure gain of $240, B. 25% chance to gain $1,000, and 75% chance to gain nothing. Decision 2. Choose between C. Sure loss of $750, D. 75% chance to lose $1,000, and 25% chance to lose nothing. This pair of choice problems has an important place in the history of prospect theory, and it has new things to tell us about rationality. As you heard the two problems, your initial reaction to the sure things A and C, was attraction to the first and aversion to the second. The emotional evaluation of sure gain and sure loss is an automatic reaction of System 1, which certainly occurs before the more effortful and optional computation of the expected values of the two gambles, respectively, a gain of $250 and a loss of $750. Most people's choices correspond to the predilections of System 1, and large majorities prefer A to B and D to C. As in many other choices that involve moderate or high probabilities, people tend to be risk-averse in the domain of gains and risk-seeking in the domain of losses. In the original experiment that Amos and I carried out, 73% of respondents chose A in decision 1 and D in decision 2, and only 3% favored the combination of B and C. You were asked to examine both options before making your first choice, and you probably did so. But one thing you surely did not do, you did not compute the possible results of the four combinations of choices, A and C, A and D, B and C, B and D, to determine which combination you like best. Your separate preferences for the two problems were intuitively compelling, and there was no reason to expect that they could lead to trouble. Furthermore, combining the two decision problems is a laborious exercise that you would need paper and pencil to complete. You did not do it. Now consider the following choice problem. A.D. 25% chance to win $240 and 75% chance to lose $760. B.C. 25% chance to win $250 and 75% chance to lose $750. This choice is easy. Option B.C. actually dominates Option A.D., the technical term for one option being unequivocally better than another. You already know what comes next. The dominant option in AD is the combination of the two rejected options in the first pair of decision problems, the one that only 3% of respondents favored in our original study. The inferior option BC was preferred by
0: 73% of respondents broad or narrow. This
1: set of choices has a lot to tell us about the limits of human rationality. For one thing, it helps us to see the logical consistency of human preferences for what it is, a hopeless mirage. Have another look at the last problem, the easy one, Would you have imagined the possibility of decomposing this obvious choice problem into a pair of problems that would lead a large majority of people to choose an inferior option? This is generally true. Every simple choice formulated in terms of gains and losses can be deconstructed in innumerable ways into a combination of choices, yielding preferences that are likely to be inconsistent. The example also shows that it is costly to be risk-averse for gains and risk-seeking for losses. These attitudes make you willing to pay a premium to obtain a sure gain rather than face a gamble, and also willing to pay a premium in expected value to avoid a sure loss. Both payments come out of the same pocket, and when you face both kinds of problems at once— the discrepant attitudes are unlikely to be optimal. There were two ways of construing decisions one and two. Narrow framing, a sequence of two simple decisions considered separately. Broad framing, a single comprehensive decision with four options. Broad framing was obviously superior in this case. Indeed, It will be superior, or at least not inferior, in every case in which several decisions are to be contemplated together. Imagine a longer list of five simple, binary decisions to be considered simultaneously. The broad, comprehensive frame consists of a single choice with 32 options. Narrow framing will yield a sequence of five simple choices— the sequence of five choices will be one of the thirty-two options of the broad frame. Will it be the best? Perhaps, but not very likely. A rational agent will of course engage in broad framing, but humans are by nature narrow framers. The ideal of logical consistency, as this example shows, is not achievable by our limited mind. Because we are susceptible to what you see is all there is, and averse to mental effort, we tend to make decisions as problems arise, even when we are specifically instructed to consider them jointly. We have neither the inclination nor the mental resources to enforce consistency on our preferences, and our preferences are not magically set to be coherent, as they are in the rational agent model.
0: SAMUELSON'S PROBLEM The great Paul Samuelson, a giant among the
1: economists of the twentieth century, famously asked a friend whether he would accept a gamble on the toss of a coin in which he could lose one hundred dollars or win two hundred dollars. His friend responded, "'I won't bet, because I would feel the one hundred dollar loss more than the two hundred dollar gain.' but I'll take you on if you promise to let me make 100 such bets. Unless you are a decision theorist, you probably share the intuition of Samuelson's friend that playing a very favorable but risky gamble multiple times reduces the subjective risk. Samuelson found his friend's answer interesting and went on to analyze it. He proved that under some very specific conditions, A utility maximizer who rejects a single gamble should also reject the offer of many. Remarkably, Samuelson did not seem to mind the fact that his proof, which is of course valid, led to a conclusion that violates common sense, if not rationality. The offer of a hundred gambles is so attractive that no sane person would reject it. Matthew Rabin and Richard Thaler pointed out that the aggregated gamble of 150-50 lose $100 slash gain $200 bets has an expected return of $5,000 with only a one hundredths chance of losing any money and merely a one thousandths chance of losing more than $1000. Their point, of course, is that if utility theory can be consistent with such an absurd preference under any circumstances, then something must be wrong with it as a model of rational choice. Samuelson had not seen Rabin's proof of the absurd consequences of severe loss aversion for small bets, but he would surely not have been surprised by it. His willingness even to consider the possibility that it could be rational to reject the package testifies to the powerful hold of the standard theory. Let us assume that a very simple value function describes the preferences of Samuelson's friend. Call him Sam. To express his aversion to losses, Sam first rewrites the bet, after multiplying each loss by a factor of two. He then computes the expected value of the rewritten bet. Here are the results for one, two, or three tosses. They are sufficiently instructive to deserve some pupil dilating effort. One toss, 50% lose 100, 50% win 200, expected value 50. Losses doubled, 50% lose 200, 50% win 200. Expected value, zero. Two tosses. 25% lose 200, 50% win 100, 25% win 400. Expected value, 100. Losses doubled. 25% lose 400, 50% win 100, 25% win 400. Expected value, 50. Three tosses. 12.5% lose 300, 37.5% win 0, 37.5% win 300, 12.5% win 600. Expected value, 150. Losses doubled. 12.5% lose 600, 37.5% win 0, 37.5% win 300, 12.5% wins 600. Expected value 112.5. You can see here that the gamble has an expected value of 50. However, one toss is worth nothing to Sam because he feels that the pain of losing a dollar is twice as intense as the pleasure of winning a dollar. After rewriting the gamble to reflect his loss aversion, Sam will find that the value of the gamble is zero. Now consider two tosses. The chances of losing have gone down to 25%. The two extreme outcomes, lose 200 or win 400, cancel out in value. They are equally likely, and the losses are weighted twice as much as the gain. But the intermediate outcome, one loss, one gain, is positive and so is the compound gamble as a whole. Now you can see the cost of narrow framing and the magic of aggregating gambles. Here are two favorable gambles, which individually are worth nothing to Sam. If he encounters the offer on two separate occasions, he will turn it down both times. However, if he bundles two offers together, they are jointly worth fifty dollars. Things get even better when three gambles are bundled. The extreme outcomes still cancel out, but they have become less significant. The third toss, although worthless if evaluated on its own, has added $62.50 to the total value of the package. By the time Sam is offered five gambles, the expected value of the offer will be $250. His probability of losing anything will be 18.75%, and his cash equivalent will be $203.125. The notable aspect of this story is that Sam never wavers in his aversion to losses. However, the aggregation of favorable gambles rapidly reduces the probability of losing, and the impact of loss aversion on his preferences diminishes accordingly. Now I have a sermon ready for Sam if he rejects the offer of a single, highly favorable gamble played once, and for you if you share his unreasonable aversion to losses. I sympathize with your aversion to losing any gamble, but it is costing you a lot of money. Please consider this question. Are you on your deathbed? Is this the last offer of a small, favorable gamble that you will ever consider? Of course, you are unlikely to be offered exactly this gamble again, but you will have many opportunities to consider attractive gambles with stakes that are very small relative to your wealth. You will do yourself a large financial favor if you are able to see each of these gambles as part of a bundle of small gambles and rehearse the mantra that will get you significantly closer to economic rationality. You win a few, you lose a few. The main purpose of the mantra is to control your emotional response when you do lose. If you can trust it to be effective, you should remind yourself of it when deciding whether or not to accept a small risk with positive expected value. Remember these qualifications when using the mantra. It works well when the gambles are genuinely independent of each other. It does not apply to multiple investments in the same industry, which would all go bad together. It works only when the possible loss does not cause you to worry about your total wealth. If you would take the loss as significant bad news about your economic future, watch it. It should not be applied to long shots, where the probability of winning is very small for each bet. If you have the emotional discipline that this rule requires, you will never consider a small gamble in isolation or be loss-averse for a small gamble until you are actually on your deathbed, and not even then. This advice is not impossible to follow. Experienced traders in financial markets live by it every day, shielding themselves from the pain of losses by broad framing. A group of neuroscientists demonstrated that experimental participants could be almost cured of their loss aversion in a particular context by inducing them to think like a trader, just as experienced baseball card traders are not as susceptible to the endowment effect as novices are. Students make risky decisions to accept or reject gambles in which they could lose under different instructions. In the narrow framing condition, they were told to make each decision as if it were the only one, and to accept their emotions. The instructions for broad framing of a decision included the phrases imagine yourself as a trader, you do this all the time, and treat it as one of many monetary decisions which will sum together to produce a portfolio. The experimenters assessed the subject's emotional response to gains and losses by physiological measures, including changes in the electrical conductance of the skin that are used in lie detection. As expected, broad framing blunted the emotional reaction to losses and increased the willingness to take risks. The combination of loss aversion and narrow framing is a costly curse. Individual investors can avoid that curse, achieving the emotional benefits of broad framing while also saving time and agony by reducing the frequency with which they check how well their investments are doing. Closely following daily fluctuations is a losing proposition because the pain of the frequent small losses exceeds the pleasure of the equally frequent small gains. Once a quarter is enough and maybe be more than enough for individual investors. In addition to improving the emotional quality of life, the deliberate avoidance of exposure to short-term outcomes improves the quality of both decisions and outcomes. The typical short-term reaction to bad news is increased loss aversion. Investors who get aggregated feedback receive such news much less often, and are likely to be less risk-averse and to end up richer. You are also less prone to useless churning of your portfolio if you don't know how every stock in it is doing every day, or every week, or even every month. A commitment not to change one's position for several periods, the equivalent of locking in an investment, improves financial performance.
0: Risk Policies Decision-makers who are prone to narrow framing
1: construct a preference every time they face a risky choice. They would do better by having a risk policy that they routinely apply whenever a relevant problem arises. Familiar examples of risk policies are, always take the highest possible deductible when purchasing insurance, and never buy extended warranties. A risk policy is a broad frame. In the insurance examples, you expect the occasional loss of the entire deductible or the occasional failure of an uninsured product. The relevant issue is your ability to reduce or eliminate the pain of the occasional loss by the thought that the policy that left you exposed to it will almost certainly be financially advantageous over the long run. A risk policy that aggregates decisions is analogous to the outside view of planning problems that I discussed earlier. The outside view shifts the focus from the specifics of the current situation to the statistics of outcomes in similar situations. The outside view is a broad frame for thinking about plans. A risk policy is a broad frame that embeds a particular risky choice in a set of similar choices. The outside view and the risk policy are remedies against two distinct biases that affect many decisions, the exaggerated optimism of the planning fallacy and the exaggerated caution induced by loss aversion. The two biases oppose each other, Exaggerated optimism protects individuals and organizations from the paralyzing effects of loss aversion. Loss aversion protects them from the follies of overconfident optimism. The upshot is rather comfortable for the decision-maker. Optimists believe that the decisions they make are more prudent than they really are, and loss-averse decision-makers correctly reject marginal propositions that they might otherwise accept. There is no guarantee, of course, that the biases cancel out in every situation. An organization that could eliminate both excessive optimism and excessive loss aversion should do so. The combination of the outside view with a risk policy should be the goal. Richard Thaler tells of a discussion about decision making he had with the top managers of the 25 divisions of a large company. He asked them to consider a risky option in which, with equal probabilities, they could lose a large amount of the capital they controlled or earn double that amount. None of the executives was willing to take such a dangerous gamble. Thaler then turned to the CEO of the company, who was also present, and asked for his opinion. Without hesitation, the CEO answered, I would like all of them to accept their risks. In the context of that conversation, it was natural for the CEO to adopt a broad frame that encompassed all 25 bets. Like Sam facing 100 coin tosses, he could count on statistical aggregation to mitigate the overall risk.
0: Speaking of risk policies. Tell her to think like a trader. You win a few,
1: you lose a few. I decided to evaluate my portfolio only once a quarter. I am too loss averse to make sensible decisions in the face of daily price fluctuations. They never buy extended warranties. That's their risk policy. Each of our executives is loss-averse in his or her domain. That's perfectly natural, but the
0: result is that the organization is not taking enough risk. Chapter 32 Keeping Score Except for the very poor,
1: for whom income coincides with survival, the main motivators of money-seeking are not necessarily economic for the billionaire looking for the extra billion, and indeed for the participant in an experimental economics project looking for the extra dollar, money is a proxy for points on a scale of self-regard and achievement. These rewards and punishments, promises and threats are all in our heads. We carefully keep score of them, They shape our preferences and motivate our actions like the incentives provided in the social environment. As a result, we refuse to cut losses when doing so would admit failure. We are biased against actions that could lead to regret, and we draw an illusory but sharp distinction between omission and commission, not doing and doing, because the sense of responsibility is greater for one than for the other. The ultimate currency that rewards or punishes is often emotional, a form of mental self-dealing that inevitably creates conflicts of interest
0: when the individual acts as an agent on behalf of an organization. Mental Accounts Richard Failer has been fascinated for many years by analogies
1: between the world of accounting and the mental accounts that we use to organize and run our lives with results that are sometimes foolish and sometimes very helpful. Mental accounts come in several varieties. We hold our money in different accounts, which are sometimes physical, sometimes only mental. We have spending money, general savings, earmarked savings for our children's education or for medical emergencies. There is a clear hierarchy in our willingness to draw on these accounts to cover current needs. We use accounts for self-control purposes, as in making a household budget, limiting the daily consumption of espressos, or increasing the time spent exercising. Often we pay for self-control, for instance, simultaneously putting money in a savings account and maintaining debt on credit cards. The econs of the rational agent model do not resort to mental accounting. They have a comprehensive view of outcomes and are driven by external incentives. For humans, mental accounts are a form of narrow framing. They keep things under control and manageable by a finite mind. Mental accounts are used extensively to keep score. Recall that professional golfers putt more successfully when working to avoid a bogey than to achieve a birdie. One conclusion we can draw is that the best golfers create a separate account for each hole. They do not only maintain a single account for their overall success. An ironic example that Failure related in an early article remains one of the best illustrations of how mental accounting affects behavior. Two avid sports fans plan to travel 40 miles to see a basketball game. One of them paid for his ticket. The other was on his way to purchase a ticket when he got one free from a friend. A blizzard is announced for the night of the game. Which of the two ticket holders is more likely to brave the blizzard to see the game? The answer is immediate. We know that the fan who paid for his ticket is more likely to drive. Mental accounting provides the explanation. We assume that both fans set up an account for the game they hope to see. Missing the game will close the accounts with a negative balance. Regardless of how they came by their ticket, both will be disappointed. But the closing balance is distinctly more negative for the one who bought the ticket and is now out of pocket as well as deprived of the game. Because staying home is worse for this individual, he is more motivated to see the game and therefore more likely to make the attempt to drive into a blizzard. These are tacit calculations of emotional balance, of the kind that System One performs without deliberation. The emotions that people attach to the state of their mental accounts are not acknowledged in standard economic theory. An econ would realize that the ticket has already been paid for and cannot be returned. Its cost is sunk, and the econ would not care whether he had bought the ticket to the game or got it from a friend, if econs have friends. To implement this rational behavior, System 2 would have to be aware of the counterfactual possibility. Would I still drive into this snowstorm if I had gotten the ticket free from a friend? It takes an active and disciplined mind to raise such a difficult question. A related mistake afflicts individual investors when they sell stocks from their portfolio. You need money to cover the costs of your daughter's wedding, and will have to sell some stock. You remember the price at which you bought each stock, and can identify it as a winner, currently worth more than you paid for it, or as a loser. Among the stocks you own, Blueberry Tiles is a winner. If you sell it today, you will have achieved a gain of $5,000. You hold an equal investment in Tiffany Motors, which is currently worth $5,000 less than you paid for it. The value of both stocks has been stable in recent weeks. Which are you more likely to sell? A plausible way to formulate the choice is this. I could close the Blueberry Tiles account and score a success for my record as an investor. Alternatively, I could close the Tiffany Motors account and add a failure to my record. Which would I rather do? If the problem is framed as a choice between giving yourself pleasure and causing yourself pain, you will certainly sell blueberry tiles and enjoy your investment prowess. As might be expected, finance research has documented a massive preference for selling winners rather than losers. A bias that has been given an opaque label. The disposition effect. The disposition effect is an instance of narrow framing. The investor has set up an account for each share that she bought and she wants to close every account as a gain. A rational agent would have a comprehensive view of the portfolio and sell the stock that is least likely to do well in the future without considering whether it is a winner or a loser. Amos told me of a conversation with a financial advisor who asked him for a complete list of the stocks in his portfolio, including the price at which each had been purchased. When Amos asked mildly, isn't it supposed to not matter? The advisor looked astonished. He had apparently always believed that the state of the mental account was a valid consideration. Amos's guess about the financial advisor's beliefs was probably right, but he was wrong to dismiss the buying price as irrelevant. The purchase price does matter and should be considered, even by econs. The disposition effect is a costly bias because the question of whether to sell winners or losers has a clear answer, and it is not that it makes no difference. If you care about your wealth rather than your immediate emotions, you will sell the loser Tiffany Motors and hang on to the winning blueberry tiles. At least in the United States, taxes provide a strong incentive. Realizing losses reduces your taxes, while selling winners exposes you to taxes. This elementary fact of financial life is actually known to all American investors and it determines the decisions they make during one month of the year. Investors sell more losers in December when taxes are on their mind. The tax advantage is available all year, of course, but for 11 months of the year, mental accounting prevails over financial common sense. Another argument against selling winners is the well-documented market anomaly that stocks that recently gained in value are likely to go on gaining at least for a short while. The net effect is large. The expected after-tax extra return of selling Tiffany rather than Blueberry is 3.4% over the next year. Closing a mental account with a gain is a pleasure, but it is a pleasure you pay for. The mistake is not one that an econ would ever make, and experienced investors who are using their system too are less susceptible to it than are novices. A rational decision-maker is interested only in the future consequences of current investments. Justifying earlier mistakes is not among the econ's concerns. The decision to invest additional resources in a losing account when better investments are available, is known as the sunk cost fallacy, a costly mistake that is observed in decisions large and small. Driving into the blizzard because one paid for tickets is a sunk cost error. Imagine a company that has already spent $50 million on a project. The project is now behind schedule and the forecasts of its ultimate returns are less favorable than at the initial planning stage. An additional investment of $60 million is required to give the project a chance. An alternative proposal is to invest the same amount in a new project that currently looks likely to bring higher returns. What will the company do? All too often a company afflicted by sunk costs drives into the blizzard, throwing good money after bad rather than accepting the humiliation of closing the account of a costly failure. This situation is in the top right cell of the fourfold pattern in figure 13, where the choice is between a sure loss and an unfavorable gamble, which is often unwisely preferred. The escalation of commitment to failing endeavors is a mistake from the perspective of the firm, but not necessarily from the perspective of the executive who owns a floundering project. Cancelling the project will leave a permanent stain on the executive's record, and his personal interests are perhaps best served by gambling further with the organization's resources in the hope of recouping the original investment, or at least in an attempt to postpone the day of reckoning. In the presence of sunk costs, the manager's incentives are misaligned with the objectives of the firm and its shareholders, a familiar type of what is known as the agency problem. Boards of directors are well aware of these conflicts and often replace a CEO who is encumbered by prior decisions and reluctant to cut losses. The members of the board do not necessarily believe that the new CEO is more competent than the one she replaces. They do know that she does not carry the same mental accounts and is therefore better able to ignore the sunk costs of past investments in evaluating current opportunities. The sunk cost fallacy keeps people for too long in poor jobs, unhappy marriages, and unpromising research projects. I have often observed young scientists struggling to salvage a doomed project when they would be better advised to drop it and start a new one. Fortunately, research suggests that at least in some contexts, the fallacy can be overcome. The sunk cost fallacy is identified and taught as a mistake in both economics and business courses, apparently to good effect, There is evidence that graduate students in
0: these fields are more willing than others to walk away from a failing project. Regret Regret is an emotion, and it is also a punishment
1: that we administer to ourselves. The fear of regret is a factor in many of the decisions that people make. Don't do this, you will regret it, is a common warning and the actual experience of regret is familiar. The emotional state has been well described by two Dutch psychologists, who noted that regret is accompanied by feelings that one should have known better, by a sinking feeling, by thoughts about the mistake one has made, and the opportunities lost, by a tendency to kick oneself and to correct one's mistake, and by wanting to undo the event and to get a second chance. Intense regret is what you experience when you can most easily imagine yourself doing something other than what you did. Regret is one of the counterfactual emotions that are triggered by the availability of alternatives to reality. After every plane crash, There are special stories about passengers who should not have been on the plane. They got a seat at the last moment. They were transferred from another airline they were supposed to fly a day earlier, but had to postpone. The common feature of these poignant stories is that they involve unusual events, and unusual events are easier than normal events to undo in imagination. Associative memory contains a representation of the normal world and its rules. An abnormal event attracts attention, and it also activates the idea of the event that would have been normal under the same circumstances. To appreciate the link of regret to normality, consider the following scenario. Mr. Brown almost never picks up hitchhikers. Yesterday, he gave a man a ride and was robbed. Mr. Smith frequently picks up hitchhikers. Yesterday he gave a man a ride and was robbed. Whom do you expect to experience greater regret over the episode? The results are not surprising. 88% of respondents said Mr. Brown, 12% said Mr. Smith. Regret is not the same as blame. Other participants were asked this question about the same incident who will be criticized most severely by others? The results, Mr. Brown, 23 percent, Mr. Smith, 77 percent. Regret and blame are both evoked by a comparison to a norm, but the relevant norms are different. The emotions experienced by Mr. Brown and Mr. Smith are dominated by what they usually do about hitchhikers. Taking a hitchhiker is an abnormal event for Mr. Brown, and most people therefore expect him to experience more intense regret. A judgmental observer, however, will compare both men to conventional norms of reasonable behavior and is likely to blame Mr. Smith for habitually taking unreasonable risks. We are tempted to say that Mr. Smith deserved his fate and that Mr. Brown was unlucky. But Mr. Brown is the one who is more likely to be kicking himself, because he acted out of character in this one instance. Decision-makers know that they are prone to regret, and the anticipation of that painful emotion plays a part in many decisions. Intuitions about regret are remarkably uniform and compelling, as the next example illustrates. Paul owns shares in Company A. During the past year, he considered switching to stock in Company B, but he decided against it. He now learns that he would have been better off by $1,200 if he had switched to the stock of Company B. George owned shares in Company B. During the past year, he switched to stock in Company A. He now learns that he would have been better off by $1,200 if he had kept his stock in Company B who feels greater regret? The results are clear-cut. Eight percent of respondents say Paul, 92 percent say George. This is curious because the situations of the two investors are objectively identical. They both now own stock A, and both would have been better off by the same amount if they owned stock B. The only difference is that George got to where he is by acting, whereas Paul got to the same place by failing to act. This short example illustrates a broad story. People expect to have stronger emotional reactions, including regret, to an outcome that is produced by action than to the same outcome when it is produced by inaction. This has been verified in the context of gambling. People expect to be happier if they gamble and win than if they refrain from gambling and get the same amount. The asymmetry is at least as strong for losses, and it applies to blame as well as to regret. The key is not the difference between commission and omission, but the distinction between fault options and actions that deviate from the default. When you deviate from the default, you can easily imagine the norm. And if the default is associated with bad consequences, the discrepancy between the two can be the source of painful emotions. The default option when you own a stock is not to sell it, but the default option when you meet your colleague in the morning is to greet him. Selling a stock and failing to greet your coworker are both departures from the default option and natural candidates for regret or blame. In a compelling demonstration of the power of default options, participants played a computer simulation of blackjack. Some players were asked, do you wish to hit? While the others were asked, do you wish to stand? Regardless of the question, saying yes was associated with much more regret than saying no if the outcome was bad. The question evidently suggests a default response, which is I don't have a strong wish to do it. It is the departure from the default that produces regret. Another situation in which action is the default is that of a coach whose team lost badly in their last game. The coach is expected to make a change of personnel or strategy, and the failure to do so will produce blame and regret. The asymmetry in the risk of regret favors conventional and risk-averse choices. The bias appears in many contexts. Consumers who are reminded that they may feel regret as a result of their choices show an increased preference for conventional options, favoring brand names over generics. The behavior of the managers of financial funds as the year approaches its end also shows an effect of anticipated evaluation. They tend to clean up their portfolios of unconventional and otherwise questionable stocks. Even life-or-death decisions can be affected. Imagine a physician with a gravely ill patient. One treatment fits the normal standard of care, another is unusual. The physician has some reason to believe that the unconventional treatment improves the patient's chances, but the evidence is inconclusive. The physician who prescribes the unusual treatment faces a substantial risk of regret, blame, and perhaps litigation. In hindsight, it will be easier to imagine the normal choice. The abnormal choice will be easy to undo. True, A good outcome will contribute to the reputation of the physician who dared, but the potential benefit is smaller than the potential cost, because success is generally a more normal outcome
0: than is failure. Responsibility Losses are weighted about twice
1: as much as gains in several contexts. Choice between gambles, the endowment effect, and reactions to price changes. The loss aversion coefficient is much higher in some situations. In particular, you may be more loss averse for aspects of your life that are more important than money, such as health. Furthermore, your reluctance to sell important endowments increases dramatically when doing so might make you responsible for an awful outcome. Richard Thaler's early classic on consumer behavior included a compelling example, slightly modified in the following question. You have been exposed to a disease which, if contracted, leads to a quick and painless death within a week. The probability that you have the disease is one in one thousand. There is a vaccine that is effective only before any symptoms appear. What is the maximum you would be willing to pay for the vaccine? Most people are willing to pay a significant but limited amount. Facing the possibility of death is unpleasant, but the risk is small, and it seems unreasonable to ruin yourself to avoid it. Now, consider a slight variation. Volunteers are needed for research on the above disease. All that is required is that you expose yourself to a one-in-one-thousand chance of contracting the disease. What is the minimum you would ask to be paid in order to volunteer for this program? You would not be allowed to purchase the vaccine. As you might expect, the fee that volunteers set is far higher than the price they were willing to pay for the vaccine. Thaler reported informally that a typical ratio is about 50 to 1. The extremely high selling price reflects two features of this problem. In the first place, you are not supposed to sell your health. The transaction is not considered legitimate, and the reluctance to engage in it is expressed in a higher price. Perhaps most important, you will be responsible for the outcome if it is bad. You know that if you wake up one morning with symptoms indicating that you will soon be dead, you will feel more regret in the second case than in the first, because you could have rejected the idea of selling your health without even stopping to consider the price. You could have stayed with the default option and done nothing, and now this counterfactual will haunt you for the rest of your life. The survey of parents' reactions to a potentially hazardous insecticide mentioned earlier also included a question about the willingness to accept increased risk. The respondents were told to imagine that they used an insecticide where the risk of inhalation and child poisoning was 15 per 10,000 bottles. A less expensive insecticide was available, for which the risk rose from 15 to 16 per 10,000 bottles. the parents were asked for the discount that would induce them to switch to the less expensive and less safe product. more than two-thirds of the parents in the survey responded that they would not purchase the new product at any price. They were evidently revolted by the very idea of trading the safety of their child for money. The minority who found a discount they could accept demanded an amount that was significantly higher than the amount they were willing to pay for a far larger improvement in the safety of the product. Anyone can understand and sympathize with the reluctance of parents to trade even a minute increase of risk to their child for money. It is worth noting, however, that this attitude is incoherent and potentially damaging to the safety of those we wish to protect. Even the most loving parents have finite resources of time and money to protect their child. The keeping my child safe mental account has a limited budget, and it seems reasonable to deploy these resources in a way that puts them to the best use. Money that could be saved by accepting a minute increase in the risk of harm from a pesticide Could certainly be put to better use in reducing the child's exposure to other harms, perhaps by purchasing a safer car seat or covers for electric sockets. The taboo trade-off against accepting any increase in risk is not an efficient way to use the safety budget. In fact, the resistance may be motivated by a selfish fear of regret more than by a wish to optimize the child's safety. The what if thought that occurs to any parent who deliberately makes such a trade is an image of the regret and shame he or she would feel in the event the pesticide caused harm? The intense aversion to trading increased risk for some other advantage plays out on a grand scale in the laws and regulations governing risk. This trend is especially strong in Europe, where the precautionary principle which prohibits any action that might cause harm, is a widely accepted doctrine. In the regularity context, the precautionary principle imposes the entire burden of proving safety on anyone who undertakes actions that might harm people or the environment. Multiple international bodies have specified that the absence of scientific evidence of potential damage is not sufficient justification for taking risks. As the jurist Cass Sunstein points out, the precautionary principle is costly, and when interpreted strictly, it can be paralyzing. He mentions an impressive list of innovations that would not have passed the test, including Airplanes, air conditioning, antibiotics, automobiles, chlorine, the measles vaccine, open-heart surgery, radio, refrigeration, smallpox vaccine, and x-rays. The strong version of the precautionary principle is obviously untenable, but enhanced loss aversion is embedded in a strong and widely shared moral intuition. It is embedded in system one. The dilemma between intensely loss-averse moral attitudes and efficient risk management does not have a simple and compelling solution. We spend much of our day anticipating and trying to avoid the emotional pains we inflict on ourselves. How seriously should we take these intangible outcomes, the self-administered punishments and occasional rewards that we experience as we score our lives? Econs are not supposed to have them, and they are costly to humans. They lead to actions that are detrimental to the wealth of individuals, to the soundness of policy, and to the welfare of society. But the emotions of regret and moral responsibility are real, and the fact that econs do not have them may not be relevant. Is it reasonable, in particular, to let your choices be influenced by the anticipation of regret? Susceptibility to regret, like susceptibility to fainting spells, is a fact of life to which one must adjust. If you are an investor sufficiently rich and cautious at heart, you may be able to afford the luxury of a portfolio that minimizes the expectation of regret even if it does not maximize the accrual of wealth. You can also take precautions that will inoculate you against regret. Perhaps the most useful is to be explicit about the anticipation of regret. If you can remember when things go badly that you considered the possibility of regret carefully before deciding, you are likely to experience less of it. You should also know That regret and hindsight bias will come together. So anything you can do to preclude hindsight is likely to be helpful. My personal hindsight avoiding policy is to be either very thorough or completely casual when making a decision with long-term consequences. Hindsight is worse when you think a little, just enough to tell yourself later, I almost made a better choice. Daniel Gilbert and his colleagues provocatively claim that people generally anticipate more regret than they will actually experience because they underestimate the efficacy of the psychological defenses they will deploy, which he labels the psychological immune system. Their recommendation is that you should not put too much weight on regret.
0: Even if you have some, it will hurt less than you now think. Speaking of keeping score. He has separate mental accounts for cash and credit
1: purchases. I constantly remind him that money is money. We are hanging on to that stock just to avoid closing our mental account at a loss. It's the disposition effect. We discovered an excellent dish at that restaurant and we never try anything else to avoid regret. The salesperson showed me the most expensive car seat and said it was the safest, and I could not bring myself to buy the cheaper
0: model. It felt like a taboo trade-off. Chapter 33 Reversals You have the task of setting
1: compensation for victims of violent crimes. You consider the case of a man who lost the use of his right arm as a result of a gunshot wound. He was shot when he walked in on a robbery occurring in a convenience store in his neighborhood. Two stores were located near the victim's home, one of which he frequented more regularly than the other. Consider two scenarios. One, the burglary happened in the man's regular store. Two, The man's regular store was closed for a funeral, so he did his shopping in the other store where he was shot. Should the store in which the man was shot make a difference to his compensation? You made your judgment in joint evaluation, where you consider two scenarios at the same time and make a comparison. You can apply a rule. If you think that the second scenario deserves higher compensation, you should assign it a higher dollar value. There is almost universal agreement on the answer. Compensation should be the same in both situations. The compensation is for the crippling injury, so why should the location in which it occurred make any difference? The joint evaluation of the two scenarios gave you a chance to examine your moral principles about the factors that are relevant to victim compensation. For most people, location is not one of these factors. As in other situations that require an explicit comparison, thinking was slow and System 2 was involved. The psychologists Dale Miller and Kathy McFarland, who originally designed the two scenarios, presented them to different people for single evaluation. In their between-subjects experiment, each participant saw only one scenario and assigned a dollar value to it. They found, as you surely guessed, that the victim was awarded a much larger sum if he was shot in a store he rarely visited than if he was shot in his regular store. Poignancy, a close cousin of regret, is a counterfactual feeling which is evoked because the thought, if only he had shopped at his regular store, comes readily to mind. The familiar System 1 mechanisms of substitution and intensity matching translate the strength of the emotional reaction to the story onto a monetary scale, creating a large difference in dollar awards. The comparison of the two experiments reveals a sharp contrast. Almost everyone who sees both scenarios together, within subject, endorses the principle that poignancy is not a legitimate consideration. Unfortunately, the principle becomes relevant only when the two scenarios are seen together, and this is not how life usually works. We normally experience life in the between-subjects mode, in which contrasting alternatives that might change your mind are absent, and of course, what you see is all there is. As a consequence, the beliefs that you endorse when you reflect about morality do not necessarily govern your emotional reactions, and the moral intuitions that come to your mind in different situations are not internally consistent. The discrepancy between single and joint evaluation of the burglary scenario belongs to a broad family of reversals of judgment and choice. The first preference reversals were discovered in the early 1970s, and many reversals of other
0: kinds were reported over the years. Challenging Economics Preference
1: reversals have an important place in the history of the conversation between psychologists and economists. The reversals that attracted attention were reported by Sarah Lichtenstein and Paul Slovic, two psychologists who had done their graduate work at the University of Michigan at the same time as Amos. They conducted an experiment on preferences between bets, which I show in a slightly simplified version. You are offered a choice between two bets, which are to be played on a roulette wheel with 36 sectors. Bet A, 11 out of 36 to win $160. 25 out of 36 to lose $15, bet B, 35 out of 36 to win $40, 1 out of 36 to lose $10. You are asked to choose between a safe bet and a riskier one, an almost certain win of a modest amount, or a small chance to win a substantially larger amount and a high probability of losing safety prevails and b is clearly the more popular choice now consider each bet separately if you owned that bet what is the lowest price at which you would sell it remember that you are not negotiating with anyone your task is to determine the lowest price at which you would truly be willing to give up the bet try it you may find that the prize that can be won is salient in this task and that your evaluation of what the bet is worth is anchored on that value. The results support this conjecture, and the selling price is higher for bet A than for bet B. This is a preference reversal. People choose B over A, but if they imagine owning only one of them, they set a higher value on A than on B. As in the burglary scenarios, The preference reversal occurs because joint evaluation focuses attention on an aspect of the situation—the fact that bet A is much less safe than bet B, which was less salient in single evaluation. The features that caused the difference between the judgments of the options in single evaluation—the poignancy of the victim being in the wrong grocery store and the anchoring on the prize— are suppressed or irrelevant when the options are evaluated jointly. The emotional reactions of System 1 are much more likely to determine single evaluation. The comparison that occurs in joint evaluation always involves a more careful and effortful assessment, which calls for System 2. The preference reversal can be confirmed in a within-subject experiment, in which subjects set prices on both sets as part of a long list, and also choose between them. Participants are unaware of the inconsistency, and their reactions when confronted with it can be entertaining. A 1968 interview of a participant in the experiment, conducted by Sarah Lichtenstein, is an enduring classic of the field. The experimenter talks at length with a bewildered participant Who chooses one bet over another, but is then willing to pay money to exchange the item he just chose for the one he just rejected, and goes through the cycle repeatedly. Rational econs would surely not be susceptible to preference reversals, and the phenomenon was therefore a challenge to the rational agent model and to the economic theory that is built on this model. The challenge could have been ignored, but it was not. A few years after the preference reversals were reported, two respected economists, David Grether and Charles Plott, published an article in the prestigious American Economic Review in which they reported their own studies of the phenomenon that Lichtenstein and Slovic had described. This was probably the first finding by experimental psychologists that ever attracted the attention of economists. The introductory paragraph of Grether and Plot's article was unusually dramatic for a scholarly paper, and their intent was clear. A body of data and theory has been developing within psychology which should be of interest to economists. Taken at face value, the data are simply inconsistent with preference theory and have broad implications about research priorities within economics. This paper reports the results of a series of experiments designed to discredit the psychologist's works as applied to economics. Grether and Plot listed 13 theories that could explain the original findings, and reported carefully designed experiments that tested these theories. One of their hypotheses, which, needless to say, psychologists found patronizing, was that the results were due to the experiment being carried out by psychologists. Eventually, only one hypothesis was left standing. The psychologists were right. Grether and Plot acknowledged that this hypothesis is the least satisfactory from the point of view of standard preference theory, because it allows individual choice to depend on the context in which the choices are made a clear violation of the coherence doctrine. You might think that this surprising outcome would cause much anguished soul-searching among economists, as a basic assumption of their theory had been successfully challenged. But this is not the way things work in social science, including both psychology and economics. Theoretical beliefs are robust, and it takes much more than one embarrassing finding for established theories to be seriously questioned. In fact, Grether and Plott's admirably forthright report had little direct effect on the convictions of economists, probably including Grether and Plott. It contributed, however, to a greater willingness of the community of economists to take psychological research seriously, and thereby greatly advanced the
0: conversation across the boundaries of the disciplines. Categories How tall is John? If John is five feet tall, your answer will depend on his age.
1: He is very tall if he is six years old, very short if he is sixteen. Your System 1 automatically retrieves the relevant norm, and the meaning of the scale of tallness is adjusted automatically. You are also able to match intensities across categories and answer the question, How expensive is a restaurant meal that matches John's height? Your answer will depend on John's age. A much less expensive meal if he is sixteen than if he is six. But now look at this. John is six. He is five feet tall. Jim is sixteen. He is five feet one inch tall. In single evaluations, everyone will agree that John is very tall and Jim is not, because they are compared to different norms. If you are asked a directly comparative question, is John as tall as Jim? You will answer that he is not. There is no surprise here and little ambiguity. In other situations, however, the process by which objects and events recruit their own context of comparison can lead to incoherent choices on serious matters. You should not form the impression that single and joint evaluations are always inconsistent, or that judgments are completely chaotic. Our world is broken into categories for which we have norms, such as six-year-old boys, or tables. Judgments and preferences are coherent within categories, but potentially incoherent when the objects that are evaluated belong to different categories. For an example, answer the following three questions.
0: Which do you like more, apples or peaches? Which do you like more, steak or stew? Which do you like
1: more, apples or steak? The first and second questions refer to items that belong to the same category, and you know immediately which you like more. Furthermore, you would have recovered the same ranking from single evaluation. How much do you like apples, and how much do you like peaches, because apples and peaches both evoke fruit? There will be no preference reversal because different fruits are compared to the same norm and implicitly compared to each other in single as well as in joint evaluation. In contrast to the within-category questions, There is no stable answer for the comparison of apples and steak. Unlike apples and peaches, apples and steak are not natural substitutes, and they do not fill the same need. You sometimes want steak, and sometimes an apple, but you rarely say that either one will do just as well as the other. Imagine receiving an email from an organization that you generally trust, requesting a contribution to a cause. Dolphins in many breeding locations are threatened by pollution, which is expected to result in a decline of the dolphin population. A special fund supported by private contributions has been set up to provide pollution-free breeding locations for dolphins. What associations did this question evoke? Whether or not you were fully aware of them, ideas and memories of related causes came to your mind projects intended to preserve endangered species were especially likely to be recalled. Evaluation on the good-bad dimension is an automatic operation of System 1, and you formed a crude impression of the ranking of the dolphin among the species that came to mind. The dolphin is much more charming than, say, ferrets, snails, or carp. It has a highly favorable rank in the set of species to which it is spontaneously compared. The question you must answer is not whether you like dolphins more than carp. You have been asked to come up with a dollar value. Of course, you may not know from the experience of previous solicitations that you never respond to requests of this kind. For a few minutes, imagine yourself as someone who does contribute to such appeals. Like many other difficult questions, The assessment of dollar value can be solved by substitution and intensity matching. The dollar question is difficult, but an easier question is readily available. Because you like dolphins, you will probably feel that saving them is a good cause. The next step, which is also automatic, generates a dollar number by translating the intensity of your liking of dolphins onto a scale of contributions you have a sense of your scale of previous contributions to environmental causes, which may differ from the scale of your contributions to politics or to the football team of your alma mater. You know what amount would be a very large contribution for you, and what amounts are large, modest, and small. You also have scales for your attitude to species, from like very much to not at all. You are therefore able to translate your attitude onto the dollar scale, moving automatically from like a lot to fairly large contribution and from there to a number of dollars. On another occasion, you are approached with a different appeal. Farm workers who are exposed to the sun for many hours have a higher rate of skin cancer than the general population. Frequent medical checkups can reduce the risk. A fund will be set up to support medical checkups for threatened groups. Is this an urgent problem? Which category did it evoke as a norm when you assessed urgency? If you automatically categorized the problem as a public health issue, you probably found that the threat of skin cancer in farm workers does not rank very high among these issues almost certainly lower than the rank of dolphins among endangered species. As you translated your impression of the relative importance of the skin cancer issue into a dollar amount, you might well have come up with a smaller contribution than you offered to protect an endearing animal. In experiments, the dolphins attracted somewhat larger contributions in single evaluation than did the farm workers. Next, Consider the two causes in joint evaluation. Which of the two, dolphins or farm workers, deserves a larger dollar contribution? Joint evaluation highlights a feature that was not noticeable in single evaluation, but is recognized as decisive when detected. Farmers are human, dolphins are not. You knew that, of course, but it was not relevant to the judgment that you made in single evaluation. The fact that dolphins are not human did not arise because all the issues that were activated in your memory shared that feature. The fact that farm workers are human did come to mind because all public health issues involve humans. The narrow framing of single evaluation allowed dolphins to have a higher intensity score Leading to a high rate of contributions by intensity matching. Joint evaluation changes the representation of the issues. The human versus animal feature becomes salient only when the two are seen together. In joint evaluation, people show a solid preference for the farm workers and a willingness to contribute substantially more to their welfare than to the protection of a likable, non human species. Here again, As in the cases of the bets and the burglary shooting, the judgments made in single and in joint evaluation will not be consistent. Christopher Shee of the University of Chicago has contributed the following example of preference reversal, among many others of the same type. The objects to be evaluated are second-hand music dictionaries. Dictionary A Year of publication, 1993, number of entries, 10,000, condition, like new. Dictionary B, year of publication, 1993, number of entries, 20,000, condition, cover torn, otherwise like new. When the dictionaries are presented in single evaluation, Dictionary A is valued more highly but of course the preference changes in joint evaluation. The results illustrates Xi's evaluability hypothesis. The number of entries is given no weight in single evaluation because the numbers are not evaluable on their own. In joint evaluation, in contrast, it is immediately obvious that dictionary B is superior on this attribute, and it is also apparent that the number of entries is far more important than the condition of the cover.
0: Unjust Reversals There is good reason to believe that the administration
1: of justice is infected by predictable incoherence in several domains. The evidence is drawn in part from experiments, including studies of mock juries, and in part from observation of patterns in legislation, regulation, and litigation. In one experiment, mock jurors recruited from jury rolls in Texas were asked to assess punitive damages in several civil cases. The cases came in pairs, each consisting of one claim for physical injury and one for financial loss. The mock jurors first assessed one of the scenarios and then they were shown the case with which it was paired and were asked to compare the two. The following are summaries of one pair of cases. Case 1. A child suffered moderate burns when his pajamas caught fire as he was playing with matches. The firm that produced the pajamas had not made them adequately fire-resistant. Case 2. The unscrupulous dealings of a bank caused another bank a loss of $10 million. Half of the participants judged case one first in single evaluation, before comparing the two cases in joint evaluation. The sequence was reversed for the other participants. In single evaluation, the jurors awarded higher punitive damages to the defrauded bank than to the burned child, presumably because the size of the financial loss provided a high anchor. When the cases were considered together, however, sympathy for the individual victim prevailed over the anchoring effect, and the jurors increased the award to the child to surpass the award to the bank. Averaging over several such pairs of cases, awards to victims of personal injury were more than twice as large in joint than in single evaluation. The jurors who saw the case of the burned child on its own— made an offer that matched the intensity of their feelings. They could not anticipate that the award to the child would appear inadequate in the context of a large award to a financial institution. In joint evaluation, the punitive award to the bank remained anchored on the loss it has sustained, but the award to the burned child increased, reflecting the outrage evoked by negligence that causes injury to a child. As we have seen, rationality is generally served by broader and more comprehensive frames, and joint evaluation is obviously broader than single evaluation. Of course, you should be wary of joint evaluation when someone who controls what you see has a vested interest in what you choose. Salespeople quickly learn that manipulation of the context in which customers see a good can profoundly influence preferences. Except for such cases of deliberate manipulation, there is a presumption that the comparative judgment, which necessarily involves System 2, is more likely to be stable than single evaluations which often reflect the intensity of emotional responses of System 1. We would expect that any institution that wishes to elicit thoughtful judgments would seek to provide the judges with a broad context for the assessments of individual cases. I was surprised to learn from Cass Sunstein that jurors who are to assess punitive damages are explicitly prohibited from considering other cases. The legal system, contrary to psychological common sense, favors single evaluation. In another study of incoherence in the legal system, Sunstein compared the administrative punishments that can be imposed by different U.S. government agencies, including the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the Environmental Protection Agency. He concluded that, within categories, penalties seem extremely sensible, at least in the sense that the more serious harms are punished more severely. For occupational safety and health violations— the largest penalties are for repeated violations the next largest for violations that are both willful and serious and the least serious for failures to engage in the requisite record keeping it should not surprise you however that the size of penalties varied greatly across agencies in a manner that reflected politics and history more than any global concern for fairness the fine for a uh, serious violation of the regulations concerning worker safety is capped at $7,000, while a violation of the Wild Bird Conservation Act can result in a fine of up to $25,000. The fines are sensible in the context of other penalties set by each agency, but they appear odd when compared to each other. As in other examples in this chapter, You can see the absurdity only when the two cases are viewed together in a broad frame. The system of administrative penalties is coherent within agencies, but incoherent
0: globally. Speaking of reversals The BTU units meant nothing to me
1: until I saw how much air conditioning units vary. Joint evaluation was essential. You say this was an outstanding speech because you compared it to her other speeches. Compared to others, she was still inferior. It is often the case that when you broaden the frame, you reach more reasonable decisions. When you see
0: cases in isolation, you are likely to be guided by an emotional reaction of System 1.